Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 74 of the Great Divide podcast, and this is our ongoing deep dive to Damascus. We're almost there, but we're going to pick up where we left off last time. This is going to be with the song Trouble the Waters. But before we talk about that, I just wanted to mention something. This discussion that you're about to hear about Trouble the Waters was recorded one day before the worst shooting in American history happened, the shooting in Las Vegas that took the lives of more than 50 people and injured hundreds of others. So I want to make that clear because in case you're listening to this and wondering why we don't mention that particular shooting, um, that's why. This was recorded right before that happened. And again, just one day before it happened. Also, around the same time, and something we also weren't aware of, when we recorded this, but there was a transgender person in America who was killed in a hate crime fashion, a brutal, brutal fashion. Her name was Allie Lee Steinfeld. And I became aware of that as well shortly after we recorded this discussion. So I bring these two points up in case anyone else out there is familiar with what happened and maybe wonders why we didn't mention these particular incidents. But also, and much more importantly, Just to show, once again, how sadly relevant the lyrics of this song still are more than 20 years after it was written, and that's a very sad thing indeed. So, on that happy note, here's Trouble the Waters. Troubled Waters. We actually have two demos for this song, where one, the first one, was demoed in Nashville in late 98. Um, that is the one we have as uh, Troubled Waters' first version on Rarity 7. We also have a second version, which was demoed in December 98 at House in the Woods at the same session as uh, Devil in the Eye that we just talked about. So having two demos is kind of interesting. Uh, the first one, a lot more bare bones. The second one, a lot more like the album version. Uh, we'll get back to the demo in terms of when it was demoed and how that plays up against certain of the events covered in the song. We just talked about Devil in the Eye. That's a tough bitch to talk about. And Trouble the Waters is also really a, a heavy song and a difficult song, but for totally different reasons. This is... Uh, not about Stuart, it's looking outwards, but it's looking at a very bleak subject matter. And the song contains several references to specific hate crimes committed in the US. And they were quite recent at the time of writing of the song. So this song, uh, just to pick up the point from uh, The President Slipped and Fell, another song which makes a larger point by using several examples. This however, is very specific in its examples, and uh, they tie together exceedingly well. Each each example seems to be carefully chosen because they deal with one specific aspect of hate crime in each verse, where one seemed to be fueled by racism, the other one a homophobic crime, and the third one a shooting incident, which sadly seems to be an ongoing thing. Yeah, really. So, um, yeah, 
lots of um, you can call them random examples i don't think they're so random uh, they are definitely examples but they point out to to a larger theme and we'll uh, we'll cover those things before we look at them one by one as a general overview the first verse speaks about the murder of james bird in east texas by racists the second verse is about the murder of matthew shepherd by homophobes and the third verse is about a school shooting where two young boys actually age 13 and 11 stole guns at home, set off the fire alarm at their school, and picked off their classmates as they left the building. Mm-hmm. All of these horrifying examples. And uh, we, we are recording this on a Sunday. I was spending yesterday just looking over these cases, and it's just heartbreaking stuff. And as you can imagine, reading through all that, you know, dredging through these things, all these stories, really set me up for a beautiful Saturday evening at home <laughs> with my family. <laughs> And those ages, too, of those kids, I'd forgotten they were that young. It's just un- unreal. There are so many things about each story that it's not just one thing go wrong. It's a series of things gone wrong. And I just have to mention, because a lot of people have uh, have talked about this in, in conjunction with that specific incident, a lot of people are assuming that Stuart is uh, talking about the shooting in uh, Columbine in Colorado, which happened on the 20th of April, 99. But it isn't. Uh, the song was already demoed back in December, 98. And actually, before that, too, the first demo version. Mm-hmm. So the song predates the Columbine incident. But it's a very understandable uh, association, as, as that happened just some months before the album came out. And then you have this song. And that was clearly a very high-profile incident, to the point that uh, even in Norway, the name Columbine trigger those very associations to school shootings and uh, obviously it helps that documentary movies were made and movements sprang out of that but uh, it's uh, it's the high profile example to to use yeah but that but that wasn't available when Stuart wrote the song or he could easily have picked that one too but but as it is we have a more than fitting example sadly Uh, but we'll uh, start with the first verse and just dive into this uh, the second bitch. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could laugh at this point. <laughs> I'm um, trying. The, yeah, I appreciate that, but we'll see. Um, the first verse. They get into guns working men and chain into a car. Claim before the judge we didn't pull him very far. Anyway, he looked at us with murder in his glance. We want to make a bargain. Let's look at it for face value. They took a southern working man and chained him to a car, claimed before the judge. We didn't pull him very far. This is about the murder of James Byrd, the 7th of June, 98, in Texas. He was a 49-year-old African-American man who was tied to his truck by three white supremacists, dragged behind it for three miles on an asphalt road. He was conscious throughout most of this ordeal, but was killed when his body hit the edge of the road, severing his right arm and head. They drove for another mile before dumping his torso in front of an African-American cemetery. The trial was not yet done when Stewart wrote the song, and you can tell from the last line in this verse that he has a concern about whether they would even be found guilty of the crime. Uh, like, they want to make a bargain and plea self-defense, because he looked at us wrong. Uh, they were right to step in and do what they did, kind of. So it's um, it's a very specific example, and uh, not no need to dwell on it. It's it it is what it is. You have it laid out, and the second verse isn't much better. They get to gay student farmer and they 
took a student farmer and they chained him to a post. This is about the murder of Matthew Shepard on the 12th of October 1998 in Fort Collins, Colorado. He was a 21-year-old student at the University of Wyoming. He was rubbed, he was beaten quite brutally, tied to a fence, tortured and left to die, which he did six days later from severe head injuries. But he first hanged there for 18 hours on that fence before he was discovered by a passing bicyclist and then uh, according to his explanation he first mistook him for a scarecrow which tells us exactly how he was tied up and how he was left there the -hmm. two attackers who did this were arrested shortly after the attack and charged with murder they found um, blood on the perpetrator's shoes they found his wallet and items in in their car and there was significant media coverage about the role of shepherd's sexual orientation and what role that played as a motive for what was done. So again, we have um, a different type of hate crime. So you see these examples are picked very specifically to show a specter of how hate can, can, uh, can work in different situations. And again, Stuart lets the perpetrator speak in the verse dealing with this. And the last two lines... This is a place where men are men, and we don't need his kind. And we know what his kind is. When you see what kind of hate crime they're, what they took for him, and uh, homosexuality. You know, men are men. We don't need his kind. And uh, we know what he planned for us. We could read his filthy mind. He is pretty clear about that's the attacker's excuse. And uh, I'll just go to the third verse. I can't deal with this shit. The third verse is about the school shooting. They gave to and they hauled him off to school Set up like a sniper in that movie that was cool Someone tripped a fire alarm and panic set about They looked upon their enemy and calmly took him out They took a box of rifles and they hauled him off to school uh, This verse, like we said, there are so many horrible school shootings in uh, in America in particular. And this one happened at the Westside Middle School in Craigers County, Arkansas, on the 24th of March, 98. A 13-year-old and 11-year-old, they killed one teacher, four students, wounded 10 others after the school emptied during that fire alarm, intentionally set off by one of them. I, I saw that these two kids were among the youngest people ever to be charged with murder in American history. And uh, because of their age, they got short sentences. Yeah. So uh, Stuart didn't live to see that, but they would end up free men again at age 21, both of them. I and I noticed, um, I noticed that both of them have since gone on to have other gun-related run-ins with the law. Yeah. So again, who threw the stone that uh, troubled the waters? The ripples continue to be uh, to be felt, and I'll get into that as we come to the choruses that try to collect all of this. So. Um, Three examples, very clear, very different type of, of hate crimes. Um, I didn't really delve deeply into the third one, but we'll, as, as far as what was the hate, but uh, both of these kids had issues at home, and that comes back into some of the lyrics of the chorus. Look, mother, trouble the waters, we've lost our 
sons and daughters Blame religion, blame the family It had to be somebody Painless violence, daddy silence Feed the glamour of drugs and guns Somebody tell me You gotta put through the storm to trouble the waters Look mother, trouble the waters We lost our sons and daughters The imagery there, first of all, of ripples in water Something is done that causes something to happen. It's a ripple effect, which begins with that stone being thrown and the effects spread out. And in each of these cases that we've gone through now, you can argue, you know, what what is the thing that leads to this thing? Is is the actual murder the stone hitting the water, or is it a ripple? Does something happen earlier in these people's lives that lead them on a path that, that are capable of such heinous deeds? And uh, going back to the phrase in particular, who threw the stone, which uh, is almost biblical in the sense that Jesus said, let the guy who is without fault cast the first stone. So who threw the stone? I'm not, I don't know if that is particularly what Stuart is referring to, but especially when he sings that line at the end of a song, when he sings just who threw the stone as a standalone line, uh, that's when I think of that phrase in particular, more than as part of the chorus. like that yeah so um, it's it's a whole big thing because the 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 concept of fault let the guy who is without fault throw the stone and Stuart goes into that in this chorus blame religion blame the family you know who it has to be somebody who is it Uh, are we looking for the blame or are we uh, what are we doing and the whole thing with we've lost our sons and daughters that does not just need to refer to the people who were murdered it could be those others they were lost years ago they they set off on a path that led to these things happening so there are all kinds of contexts you can read into that chorus uh, and especially the painless violence that is silence just <laughs> chilling lines really especially the that is silence what is he silent about did something happen and especially one of the kids who did the school shootings there were things coming out that he had been sexually molested as a even younger kid and uh, that comes into the whole thing. And the other one was uh, made familiar with guns at age six, which mm-hmm. is nuts to me. Uh, so there are a whole lot of things. There, there's a background to everything. Uh, God, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is such a dreary subject. I know, I know. Yeah. I think the noteworthy thing to, to try and move on here uh, is that this song comes just two songs after a song like The President Slipped and Fell, which makes fun of media. And here we are actually reporting on very different types of stories that definitely made a huge splash. And it's clear that Stewart is taking great care here to thread a very fine line between sensationalism and making more genuine points in the song that perhaps he would in precedent. He's definitely not just recapping the news here. He is purposefully connecting three acts of hate, which at the time were treated as isolated incidents and uh, described as senseless tragedies. But Stuart is really in the song asking us to look long and hard at their common denominators in all these stories. We're talking about racism, we're talking about homophobia, Uh, to some degree we could be talking about sexism, we could be talking about a potent mixture of hatred, ignorance, and lack of tolerance. And if you look closer at what Stuart is saying, and look closer into the examples he provides, 
which obviously is a very uncomfortable exercise, he does his best to expose these things for what they are in the song. And there's no easy answers provided here to these horrifying deaths. In fact, he seems to be saying there aren't any easy answers, but he 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 tries to lament them as well as any writer possibly could. And uh, there is a postscript to some of these killings that Stuart never lived to see, which is the passing of the so-called Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, which is an American act of Congress signed by President Barack Obama in October 2009. This law, it's a response to the murders of these people. It took a while to appear, but this expands on uh, the previous federal hate crime law to include crimes motivated by victims' actual or perceived gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. I'm clearly reading this out. Uh, But what this does is define crimes such as the one mentioned in the song as hate crimes, which means different methods of uh, investigating them are allowed, Uh, more federal uh, interference is allowed if they feel the local communities don't investigate them enough. There's a whole lot of greater security that these things can be looked into and uh, actually be dealt with. So they, they led to something. Stuart never saw this. It's not necessarily the answer to all things wrong, but it's uh, something that at least you can point and say it led to something. And as human beings, we do our best to try and make sense of things and look for the best outcome that it actually had, even though it, it's kind of a, even a hard exercise to, to find meaning in something like this. So that that's what the song is about. These are the three examples. I, I'm going to let them stand alone. I can't really delve deeper into them. But I'll, I'll jump to the music. And uh, this is the one moment I always wait for on a big country album. The uneasy song. I mean, the something is coming or something is going on song. The song with dramatic undercurrents. And this is the one song on this album that has that. But this time... The reason the song is so uneasy is a little different than normal. We're not talking about storms here. We're not talking about female carnival attractions or anything mystical or epic. We're talking about very real hate crimes. And uh, that's the one thing that I I never forget, that the people in this song were real. They lived and they were murdered. This is not a happy subject. And there's nothing poetic about what happened here and about what this song is talking about. But I still have to give kudos to the sonic soundscape of the song and how the music helps put a mood for this topic and these stories. Um, And I can only describe that mood as very correct for the subject, that these tales are uneasy. And it feels right that the music should be a bit uneasy too, uneasy and very dramatic. And it starts really from the get-go with that intro. The guitar line is really good. And the keyboard lines that play an opposing rhythm to that picking line is it's really good it's 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 actually great it reminds me of the sound of a mellotron which is a keyboard utilizing tape loops to enable playing various sounds you couldn't yet replicate on a keyboard the mellotron really rose to prominence in the 1960s It does make me think of that type of sound, but 
obviously it isn't. Highly likely it's just a normal keyboard emulating that kind of sound. But it's uh, it's a very cool effect and it, it does fit the uh, the song. And thank God they didn't go for a cheesy Hammond sound, uh, but actually found a good keyboard oh, sound yes. to go with this song. Thank goodness. <laughs> I know that you love the Hammond sound. <laughs> yeah. Whatever Josh Phillips played on this song really worked well. I thought we uh, established <laughs> that he didn't play on this. I know, I'm just kidding. You're winding up Bruce, aren't you? <laughs> no. I think he I think he has said eight seven or eight times on the on the page. Really it wasn't Josh Phillips even after we said it. We know, we know. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce, we know really. We all believe you. But yeah, and so that keyboard part is good and there is another keyboard line that comes in into the second verse actually, which adds a very haunting aspect to the song. That 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 line is also good. So we actually have two different keyboard parts in the song that work to great effect. I actually have to give kudos for once. I like that a lot. The chorus itself very catchy musically it's very tight well played and a lot of layers and and people for all the heaviness of this song this is the one to listen to in headphones there are some really fascinating guitar lines happening underneath it all there in the chorus especially many great guitar lines just individual melody lines played but it's a bit buried you need to kind of um, dig for them to hear them I actually heard them first on the, the vinyl. Then I went back in headphones with the CD as well. And it's uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Just like there's a lot of stuff going on in the song otherwise as well. There's um, also a wonderful break in the middle of the song. Where there are some lovely sliding guitar lines that for some reason just sound very emotional. Like, I, don't, I wouldn't say crying guitar lines, but it's kind of the whale very effectful very nice and also almost at the same place a small choir of voices adding harmonics very poignant part of that song It's almost like the song is stopping a little bit, taking a deep breath to steal itself before it continues into the third verse and yet another tragedy. So just a lovely little break that um, really does a lot for me for in, in that song. And I'm going to jump to the end, the end of the song. It's also very nice. Uh, it's a fade out. And in that fade out, Stuart is asking the questions from the chorus one last time line by line and I already mentioned it who threw that stone which he says um, and again that that's where the biblical term of that thing strikes me but uh, yeah all that ending he, he's asking the question and the song is being left asking all those questions one by one and it um, 
that, that it's the only way to end the song. You you can't give answer to what is meaningless. You can you can't find meaning in what is meaningless. So it's it's really a song that puts the spotlight on something and um, the rise of hate crime and uh, it's it's 20 years removed and I just feel man didn't we come longer in that time yeah really Ugh. your turn <laughs> yeah no we have not and um, yeah we both had pretty difficult songs to discuss there uh, yeah that was good I mean a, a lot of these good and yet horrible <laughs> Yeah, as, you, as you say, when you talk about the lyrics of this song, there's really nothing to dissect. Um, it's all it's all right there for you. These, like you said, these are real people who went through these things, and Stewart's not trying to write lyrics um, that are difficult to decipher or or have any abstract nature to them whatsoever. It's not just, this time. Yeah, it's just right there in your face. Um, yeah, I mean. A lot of this really took me back to the to this time period because, um, and thanks to Jamin Wheats for sending uh, some some of the uh, links to some of these things for me that I'd looked at. I mean, I knew I knew the story of uh, the man who was pulled behind the truck and Matthew Shepard and school shooting. Sadly, I wasn't I couldn't remember exactly what school shooting was being talked about here, which is which is so incredibly sad even more so because there have been so many of them over the years that you forget but yeah i'd forgotten about this one because uh, i i also i'm sure at the time this song came out i remembered what it was or knew what it was talking about because there had been less of them but um as time moved on i just eventually just thought of columbine every time i thought about this but yeah this was a completely different school shooting that predated columbine and what what really makes it clear what it's about is when the line someone tripped the fire alarm because that's what happened in this particular school shooting these kids did get their weapons they they got up on a hillside and someone set off a fire alarm and when the kids came out the students came out the teachers came out that's when they they shot them um and the fact that they were in middle school was just man it's mind-boggling um the whole defense thing that you mentioned from the James Byrd case, uh, we want to make a bargain in the plea of self-defense. It's interesting because there was also a bargain attempted to be made in the Matthew Shepard case by the people who, who killed him. And it's something that's that's uh, been called the gay panic defense, <laughs> which you got to laugh at because without because the otherwise you just cry about it. It's so ridiculous. But the gay panic defense is actually what these guys who killed Matthew Shepard tried to uh, to to bring into bring onto the table when they were when they were being uh, tried. And it's actually a legal defense, usually against charges of assault or murder. A defendant using the defense claims they acted in a state of violent, temporary insanity because of a purported psychiatric condition called homosexual panic. The defendant alleges to find the same sex sexual advances so offensive and frightening that it brings on a psychotic state characterized by unusual violence. So believe it or not, the gay panic defense was actually something that was used in this trial. It's just... It's just mind-numbing. Um, the the lyrics, as you said on Devil in the Eye, there's no point in me going back through them because they stand on their own. Um, but let's go back to the title a little bit, uh, Trouble the Waters. You know, that, that There's actually an old song called uh, Wade in the Water, 
and it's an old um, spiritual song. Uh, it might even be be what people here might call an old Negro spiritual, like something that African Americans would sing when they were still slaves out in the fields. Um, but there's a line in that, that that says, "Wait in the water, wait in the water, children, wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the water." And um, I'm sure Stuart was thinking about that, you know, just judging from his background, what he was interested in. There's also a, a Bible verse where we've got God troubling the water, and it says, um, there, there's a verse uh, in the book of John, and it says, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So... Interestingly enough, in the, in the Bible, this God troubles the water, quote-unquote, in this pool, and it becomes a pool of healing where someone walks in, um, they become healed of whatever disease they had. So that's another, which is completely the opposite of, of what's happening in this song. Nobody's being healed. In fact, it's like a disease that's spreading when someone troubles the water in, in here, in this song. Um but again, we, we, we look back at, at how these song titles and certain lyrics do come back to, again, Christianity for Stuart, and, and in this case, older Christian spiritual songs. So I, I guess the only lyrics that I'll continue to talk about are the chorus lyrics. You know, we, we've lost our sons and daughters. Blame religion. Blame the family. It had to be somebody. Some of the lines that strike me are painless violence is, is one of them. Um, and then feed the glamour of drugs and guns. But I, I think, once again, this song is, is another example, kind of like the president slipped and fell, but a totally different uh, feeling, obviously, in this song, a lot heavier, darker feeling. But another example of a song where Stewart was, again, really ahead of his time. I mean, he's talking about things that are still, even even more so, obviously, today, being talked about. And the shooting instances whether they're in schools or offices or wherever here in america sadly have not let up i mean we still we, we still get them on a pretty constant basis you know it's it's it just it's going to happen and people have become uh i don't want to say complacent about it or sensitized but there is some degree of sensitivity or desensitivity desensitization if you can believe it to school shootings or office shootings or, I mean, believe me, when they happen, we're all shocked, we're all horrified, we're all disgusted, um, no matter what side of the political fence you sit on. But there is this sense where it's like, oh, well, we got to move on. And and how, how horrible that is, how, how sickening that is. And I think the song in that chorus is like, there's got to be a reason, there's got to be someone that we could turn to that say who did this who started this path of violence but 
you know, and, and a steward, I'm sure, understands as he's writing this song, there is no answer to this because, the, I mean, yes, the school shootings here in America, the, the hate crimes, you know, that, that are mentioned here specifically are very, even now, just, you know, 20 years later, uh, around 20 years later, they're still very much in our consciousness. But this kind of thing has been happening for as long as humans have been around. Um, violence, uh, horrible violence of this kind of, for people who are different, um, that you're afraid of because of their, because of their differences, uh, mindless killing for no apparent reason. And these things, there's just no real answer to it. And as technology rises and people have access to these weapons that, that can, that can kill so easily and so clinically precise uh, in such a clinically precise way that the body counts rise. Um, but the, but the feelings behind them, whatever the reasons are, it's, it's just something that seems to be ingrained in, in humans. So there, there's no song, there's no answers in this song. And I think that's another one of the things that, you know, you bring up that this is a song that kind of troubling big country song where something is happening. And I never thought about this song that way before, but I, I can really see it, you know, when you bring that up, because it does have that sense of just menace that's, that's coming. And there's no sort of like in devil in the eye, there's, there's no real way to stop it. It's just, it's just like there. And there, there are no answers in this song. There's no, there's no happy answer. Like, uh, you know, the typical, if we all just join together and love one another, you know, there's nothing like that in this. There's just like, I'm, I want to find how this all started, but there's no, there's no answer. And look, here's, here's three horrible examples of things that have just recently happened and it still continues. I mean, I personally, uh, the painless violence thing strikes a chord in me because I think, yeah, that's something that I've often thought about as, as we get into technology and, and video games and things like that, which I am, I love video games. I play them all the time. I play violent video games. So I'm, I'm talking in a hypocritical way here in some respects, but, and I don't mean to just jump on video games, but there is like a sense of painless violence and violence is so easy to see these days and just, and just forget about. I mean, I, I do think there should be age limits as to how old kids are before they start playing some of these games. I mean, I've seen young kids just, playing call of duty type games where they're just mowing down people in the most violent way. And it is like painless violence. I and mean, it becomes, sometimes you look at these actual, this actual footage from recent wars and you see, you know, from a distance bombs being dropped on tiny little specks of people running with night vision. You seeing them with night vision and you see them obliterated and you're just like sitting there behind your computer. Like, Oh yeah, look how many they took out. And it, you know, it's like it. You don't yeah. think about the fact that that everyone is a son or a daughter to someone, and everyone started off as a tiny little baby who whose parents were, you know, for the most part, happy to see them come into the world, and were thinking mm. and planning for things. You know, I've often thought about if I could do it, you know, some sort of video where you would see like a, a video game, and you know. You, where waves of faceless, nameless soldiers are being wiped out, and suddenly the video you would see like a soldier hit, and suddenly it would stop, and you would you would re- reverse back into time, and you would see this soldier go through like really quickly. You would see them go through all these periods of his life, all the way back to when he was born. <laughs> this reminds me of uh, the Austin Powers movie where they killed the henchman, 
And then they stopped the movie to have an interview with the henchman's family and how they felt about it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's exactly the same thing. Yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's fun. And I, I'll have a different take, too, to add to yours for the painless violence. I definitely thinking more about the uh, the mental terror that you can also give kids and uh, and people in your family like mm, you yeah. might you might not hit them but there are many ways to make them feel unwanted or or punish them or you know daddy's silence could just be or is he quiet about something that has happened or is it not the silent treatment necessarily that's <laughs> the mildest form of violence <laughs> violence you can give but right right, right. Uh, there, there's uh, there's all kinds of things you can do to to shape people and make them sort of loners and antisocial people that can grow up and do things so you're saying that i should maybe rethink uh screaming at my kids calling them losers saying they'll never amount to anything saying, no that is fine saying they're gaining weight when they're that will motivate them i think you're on the right track okay good that's what i thought i just wanted to make sure all right the good. same uh, technique you do to your football team no doubt <laughs> yeah that's right oh man but uh anyway so the lyrics are still very present very you know meaningful today and in some ways, you could you could look at it as a you know we talked about "Devil in the Eye" as a warning type of song. You could look at this as similar types of things. I mean, for crying out loud, we've got we've got Nazis marching in America again. You know, feeling like they're feeling comfortable marching in America. Um, one of the one of the killers of James Byrd. And by the way, I'm glad you didn't mention any of their names because I didn't want to either. I don't want to mention their names, but James Byrd. Um, one of his killers, he said, reg- when he was in jail, he said, regardless of the outcome of this, we have made history. Death before dishonor. Zig Heil. That's something he wrote in prison. So, I mean, we've got that mentality. And we always need to be aware of it. You know, again, and again, no matter what side of the, of the political spectrum you fall on, in America, anyway, I'm speaking, you know, Nazis. <laughs> we, we Can't we all agree on Nazis? So, let's, again, this song still means something today in 2017 for this. So... Mm. And anyway, it's a dark song lyrically. You did a great job, you know, going through it. Uh, just as you were glad I took Devil in the Eye, I'm glad you took this one because these are painful subjects. Um, so let's talk about the music again. Uh, I, I this this to me is a great example. And we talked about this on Perfect World and some other ones, and I'll say it again for this this one. Another great example of big country doing something different, evolving, changing their sound a bit, going in directions we weren't. We aren't used to them going in, but still being big country and sounding like big country. This sounds like a big country song to me. This sounds like, um, you know, and, and even, and it was mentioned in the speak pipe, and I agree with it. Stuart, Stuart's vocals, I remember when I first heard this, I thought, wow, Stuart's singing in this chorus. That sounds like the old Stuart to me. That sounds like the Stuart Adamson voice that I remember from the older big country albums. It doesn't have that yeah. Americanized feel to it. So, I wonder what it was there, you know, that maybe it's just something about his intonation in that chorus that brought him back to the old style. But it really sounds like the old school Stuart singing in that chorus. And um, I just remember when I heard that for the first time, it, it I was like, yeah, you know, this is great. I love I love hearing this. So what's really different about it is, of course, the the acoustic treatment of the song. It's It's a very acoustic song for the most part we've got um great mandolin playing in there by i'm assuming it's bruce um he seems to be the the mandolin go-to guy so i'm going to assume it's him 
Um, and it's great. Great mandolin lines that really add a lot to it. And then the, the acoustic guitar is, is great, too, because it's not just like folky, soft acoustic guitar. But when it gets to the chorus, it's really um, hard strumming and staccato-y type strumming of the acoustic guitar. And it it's it's just works great. It's a really nice change of pace and a welcome change of style in a way for big country. And yet it still feels like big country. And that chorus is so catchy. I mean, which is which is hard to say when you consider the lyrical, you know, status of the song. But it really is a very, very catchy chorus. Yes. And, and I, I think what it reminded me of at the time, too, and I, I remember this was Dave Matthews. And I, I'm not a fan of Dave Matthews, really. There are a couple of songs here and there that I might like, but I'm not a fan. But I remember he was really big at the time uh, when this came out. And, um, you know, his songs were very acoustic uh, based and the preponderance of the sound was an acoustic treatment. And I remember thinking this was like a Dave Matthews big country song. And I I even thought that this could have been a very brave choice as a single in America. Um, I mean, I don't know how it would have been in, been embraced with the lyrics, but. It might have been, it could have gone two ways. It would have either been completely embraced and someone would have said, we got to play a song like this because it's really timely. Or it could have been like, no way, we're not playing this, you know, not with everything going on. But from a musical standpoint, it, it did have that kind of Dave Matthews-esque feel that was very popular over here at the time. So I don't know. It could have been an interesting single choice. Um, mm. with, with Mark, you get... Again, Mark really shines on this album, and and he shines on this song. Uh, he does some great drum. He has some great drumming on this. Great Mark Brzezicki flourishes. Um, he's got this crash symbol that goes throughout a lot of it that he uses to accent certain parts, which I think is great. And then there's a there's a drum part that he plays um, on the line. They looked upon their enemy and calmly took him out. You know, horrible. Gosh, probably the most horrible line in the song. But um, the drums that Mark plays underneath that. He plays this really cool part that that uh, I can't even really describe. It. It's just a typical Berzecki part, and just adds so much to it. You know, no, no other drummer I think would would do what he does there. Someone tripped a fire alarm and panic set about. They looked upon their enemy and calmly took him out. Look, mother, trouble the waters. We've lost our sons and daughters. So. Yeah, uh, that's really all I've got to say about the song. I mean, I can't add much else to what you say. I think it's a, if there's one thing that stands out with this song, it's um, from a musical standpoint, I think it's a great success for a big country taking things in a different direction um, mm-hmm. in a very successful way and still and still remaining true to what, what it is that their hardcore fan base wants from them and, and loves from them. So... You know, and we get Stewart at his most, you know, empathetic in this song, and and an angry Stewart in a lot of ways too. There's some anger in this song that I can sense. Oh yeah, you know that really comes through. No, no doubt, what fueled him to write this. Yeah, and especially, and we didn't make a point out of this, but the murder of Matthew Shepard happened on the 12th of October, 1998, and they demoed this song shortly after. That was a new thing. Mm. It was very recent at that time. I mean, less than a month later, he would have put that in a song. Wow. So that's very, uh, that's very recent. Amazing. Yeah, and those demos you know, are very interesting. We've got two versions of it on the demos, and 
yeah, that first one almost seems like it's just Stuart. It's like uh, there's a drum machine, and it's very, very rough around the edges. going to assume that that's mostly just Stuart playing that and it's got almost like some Middle Eastern type of even more so Middle Eastern type of sounds in this in the, that demo version there's like a the breakdown section um, there's something going on there that's that's even more Middle Eastern sounding which is interesting I guess if there's one criticism that I'd have musically about the song is that even though it, it, it's it's put together very well, I, I always felt that like there was just something missing musically. Like like I wanted something else to take it to another level emotionally. I don't know if that would have been a guitar solo or if it would have been. I don't know what it would have been, but like the bridge for the song is really pretty much just the verse, but everything is taken down and it works. It works well. But I don't know if there could have been like a different part altogether that was added in there. Maybe not. I mean, maybe it just, you know, the lyrics are so heavy that it just, it's enough. But yeah, that's what I'm thinking that you don't want to put a guitar solo on, on a song like this. Yeah. Maybe, it, maybe you can arrange something and have a kind of like I, I, I felt for, for somebody else. One of the things I felt they did so well for that one was have many, many parts to the song. And they could have added another part without having the typical glorious big country guitar solo on it. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I see that. But I think, yeah, it, the song is great. And you said they retain big country while moving forward. I actually think they this is the one song on the album that sounds really like classic big country through and through. I think the acoustic treatment, they've done that many times in the past. The instrumentation is, you can even hear hints of Celtic in the intro and some of these things. Oh, yeah. But but obviously the subject matter is far removed from what they would write about in the early days. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, and you know, I think they've obviously done acoustic, they've had acoustic guitars in their songs, but I don't think I'd, I'd ever heard a song that was like almost completely acoustic guitars driving the entire song from them so that i mean that stood out to me yeah um, electroacoustic they took a tip from mike peter's book yeah yeah it could be okay so let me uh read what i wrote about it back then and i'll give you my ranking and you can give me yours 
I wrote, this is really a stellar track. Stu does a masterful job weaving a number of true tales of hate crimes committed in the USA recently into these powerful, moving lyrics. Another new sound for big country, much more acoustic, almost a bit like a Scottish Dave Matthews band without all the annoying gyrating. (laughs) The chorus instantly burns itself into your head and is hard to forget. Great singing from Stewart on this one, too. His phrasing reminds me of the older big country albums. This could be a hit over here in the U.S., I think. Very timely material, and this type of music is very popular here at the moment. Something to consider. So... I think you mentioned all of that. Yeah, I pretty much did. Man, I don't change much. So I gave it a five. Or this is number five. I didn't just give it a five. This is number five. That's where I have it, number five. Nice. Look at that. Serendipity. It's a tough song to to get behind, really. But on another level, it... um, the music is so big country and uh, it's so catchy and uh, the song has more aspects to it. I think, um, you know, even if you forget these three stories and what they're about, like we, we went over them now and uh, you have the names and you know what happened to these people. But even if you don't know the people, the examples can still stand. Yeah, no doubt. Definitely. Yeah, so it's, uh, it works well that way. Shut Hi guys, it's Lisa Cannell. Just wanted to weigh in on driving to Damascus. I have mixed feelings about this album. Um, It makes me incredibly sad at times because it was Stewart's last with the band. But I also feel that some of the songs are timeless and really relevant. So I like it for that reason. Um, Of course, song-wise, Fragile Thing, love it just for the sheer beauty, even though the lyrics are sad. Shattered Cross, I like that one. Um, it's a little bit different than what we hear from Stewart normally, but it also proves that he could hold his own with the best songwriters in Nashville. Uh, my favorite on the album is Trouble the Waters, however. Um, one thing, I, he, Stewart's voice in this song seemed to be a little less Americanized and sounded more like the singing voice that we're used to hearing from the early albums. I really think that the lyrics are relevant to this song as well as we have lost our sons and daughters to a certain extent. I work with educators, um, so I see this a lot. And the section about the shooters is pretty relevant to me. I actually had lunch with Frank DeAngelis, who was the principal at Columbine High School at the time of the shootings a little while back. Um, The stories he told me were really heart-wrenching. It's interesting. I know Damascus was recorded in 1999, and the shootings happened that same year, so I just wonder if perhaps Stewart also had that on his mind when he wrote the song and recorded the album. And lastly, I can't forget Bella. Uh, This is for C.J. Wade and Arlen Bartles. Uh, You guys, I had to bring it up. My my main thing about this song is at least the title's good. I have a cat named Bella, so I'll give it that. Um, she wasn't named after the song. That's all I'm going to say about Bella because my mama said, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Anyway, keep up the great work, guys. And, you know, I may get caught up on these podcasts by the time I'm 80. So... I'm going to go listen some more, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Stay alive. 
Yeah, hey, gents. Uh, this is Sean from Boston. And first, I just want to say thanks for all the hard work you do on the podcast. Um, the last uh, group, or the last batch with Tony Butler was um, just superb. And, uh, um, you know, when he released his new CD, I'm sure that you will get him back on um, because it was just magnificent. But anyway, on to Driving to Damascus, which probably ranks up there with my least favorite big country cd um outside of uh, driving to damascus the song dive into me uh, fragile thing grace in your spirit to me i just cannot get into this album whatsoever and even though some of those songs i just mentioned are kind of a stretch um to me the biggest problem with this album is it's a little disjointed and all over the place um and uh you know stewart's voice just drastically changed to this country twang and uh, I was disturbed. If, as a matter of fact, there were some songs I had to go back and check the credits to make sure he was actually singing. I remember being extremely excited for this album to come out. Uh, I was actually on the road uh, with work. I got the call from my girlfriend that it arrived, and I was, uh, you know, super psyched. Got home, and then I was super disappointed. What followed from this album was the farewell tour, but uh, in my mind, the band was all but done anyway. I think the song Somebody Else kind of sums up what I think of Driving to Damascus is that there was just somebody else on this album. This wasn't big country to me. Um, in my mind, and you know, it's, it's, it was the last, the last hurrah, obviously, because obviously Stuart passed away. But, um, you know, I felt like it was over anyway. And quite frankly, if this was the direction that Stuart wanted to take the band, I was glad that it was over because I didn't want more albums like this to kind of taint what I felt was just uh, you know a, a terrific catalog up to that point of course it had some bumps and bruises along the way um, but to me this was the bottom of the battle so uh, looking forward to your deep dive uh, as always um, and again thanks for all the hard work and um, we'll catch you later thanks Juice. Okay, so now we turn our attention to a new song. This song is called Bella. And before we talk about what the song is about lyrically and the themes of the song, because those have, have kind of made me reassess my, my feelings about the song somewhat over the years. And I'll talk about that in a second, but I just have to talk about the first time I heard those opening chords. And I have to liken it, I guess, to my experience hearing Republican Party Reptile for the first time. I was never expecting blues slide guitar sounding like ZZ Top and um, this kind of blues-based uh, southern blues type of sound to come from big country. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I've talked about this before, but I just was stunned. But I have grown to like Republican Party Reptile a good bit over the years. I, I enjoy that song. And it's, it's, as the shock wears off, I come to appreciate the song for what it is. But Bella was just too much for me at the, at the time I first heard it. I mean, as soon as the guitars kicked in, I thought, this is like Start Me Up, Rolling Stones. And, oh, no, yeah, here we go again. I, don't want, I do not want a Rolling Stones song from Big Country. Even going back to when Big Country played Honky Tonk Women live, you know, it's one thing to play it live as a as a lark for fun, but to put to put it on an album 
is a little bit different. And I have to say, too, if I, if I had seen the show live where they played Honky Tonk Women, especially uh, being the fact that it was, I think, the Seer tour, I, and, and I, I would, would have been thinking all the songs that could be playing right now, and they're playing Honky Tonk Women. <laughs> you know, that would have bothered me. <laughs> you know, it, it wouldn't yeah. have... You know, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been any comfort for me to think, oh, they're just having fun. It's like, well, what about me? What about the sailor? What about Red Fox? What about uh, something from Steel Town instead of Honky Tonk Women? What do we do at Honky Tonk Women in the B set of the single? Yeah, no, well, we do it live sometimes for a crack. It's just a song, you know. It's uh, I think it's better. I think it's important to do things like that to keep your sense of humour up and keep your tongue filling your cheeky things. No, I think. There's, there's loads, loads of great songs to do, but nobody's... I'd, I've never heard anybody ever covering Honky Tonk Women. The way it came about was the gear broke down in Newcastle uh, earlier on in the year, and uh, we kind of went hard at it to sort of make up for it, and uh, it turned into a real sort of occasion, and just bounced songs at the bar and say, who can play this, and who can play such and such, and we, who can play Honky Tonk Women? Aye, we can play that, so we just went out and did it. And it's stuck, and it's, it's the same way we started the tracks in my tears as well. That was awful too, I heard that in the venue. <laughs> that was desperate. <laughs> You've killed that off, have you? Eh, no, no, it's, no they, they, they come and go from time to time. Honky Tonk Women's the one that's in favour at the moment, though. So. Oh no! That's <laughs> ah, brilliant, it's a good crack. You need to lose yourself to the moment, you know, you can't think like that. I know, you're, you're right, you do, you do. And uh, this is definitely I should do like I say and not like I do for, because I'm just like you. <laughs> right. Well, it, you know, it's it, it sounds like a criticism and it is, but it also speaks to just how powerful Big Country's original music is to some of us because that that power is what drew us to the music in the first place. That feeling that, that I often talk about that it's like a it's like a drug, it's like a high that you get only from that particular type of music. So because you you know what that feels like you want to keep feeling it. And when someone gives you something that's watered down and not going to give you that feeling, it's hard to just embrace it and say, oh, well, this is just part of the whole gamut of what big country is. Over time, you can do that, but it's hard sometimes initially. So that, that was my feeling with this song. It's not just that opening riff, which is I was giving it a chance at that point, but what really destroyed it for me within seconds was the keyboard in this song. As soon as I heard that, it was just like a switch going off. Like, I cannot possibly like this song. What What are they doing here? This is so antithetical to what I want Big Country to be. And especially after a song like Trouble the Waters, which did have a very, as we talked about, very old school type of Big Country feel. I was ready for more. But when I listen to the song and try to divorce myself from that keyboard part, which is not easy to do, there are some, there are some good things about it. And there are some things that I, at times, will find myself... Yeah, this isn't this isn't nearly as bad as I thought it was in the beginning. Um, it's it's the production in a lot of respects that brings it down. But one thing that I, I do think is cool about it musically, and I, this kind of hit me recently, is that on this album we've talked a lot about the Rafe McKenna guitar treatment that he gives a lot of the dis, the distorted guitar sounds, and I think he's done a great job on that uh, on this album. He did a, he did a fantastic job with making Big Country's distorted guitar seem new and different for the band but on this song this song is interesting because the guitar tone on on this song has that traditional big country sound it almost sounds like Stuart 
or Bruce or both just plugged their guitars into the amps that they normally use live, and they just mic'd it up and recorded it. They didn't give it that huge, big treatment that Rafe McKenna gave it on other songs like Perfect World. And I like that. It, it's it's a sort of a, a, a nostalgic nod. We could fly in the dreaming of dreams And you came to me I would welcome you in Now I'm awake in the After that, I mean, musically, there's not a whole lot more to talk about with this song. It, it, it's a... It's a very standard type of blues-based big country song. Um, it is very, very scarily similar to another song that we'll, that I'll talk about. Well, I'll just talk about it now. But this song really is eerily similar chorus-wise to the NXS song, Baby Don't Cry. And uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, here's a little comparison for you. Okay, so play that. Baby Don't Cry! Okay, now do Bella. Bella, don't cry. Bella, don't cry. Yeah, when you hear both of them, it's it's a little too close for comfort there. So I don't know what happened. Um, maybe I think else. it's uh, I think it's revenge personally because uh, there's a little subscript to this whole thing. NXX actually started it. They ripped off Big Country first, and uh, I choose to see this as Stuart's revenge for the NXX ripoff. And we're going to do another comparison here because they took uh, they stole the riff for Wonderland and used it on their track New Sensation. So play those back to back and take that sucker. Okay, here, uh, here we go. I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Oh man! All right, so yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't know. That's it's certainly that staccato sound is very Wonderland esque. Well, uh, if they, if it was Stewart's Revenge, I wish he could have picked a better song to get revenge on. In a lot of respects, <laughs> it's a little it. scary though because I have seen songs dragged to court because of similarities that are much smaller than the similarity between Baby Don't Cry and Bella. So yes. I don't know if they asked for permission or made sure that things were okay, but that would usually be reflected in the writing credits. And in this case, it isn't. This is a straight Stuart Adamson solo composition credit. I know, I know. And, and you got to wonder, you know, if Driving to Damascus had been a huge album for them, uh, I wonder if that would have changed things. Maybe in, maybe this album wasn't even on NXS's radar. They didn't even think about it. You know, so maybe knows? it was a blessing in disguise, the false fiasco and everything. Yeah, I don't know. It, I don't know. It was but, still be in court. But you're right. I, I've seen court cases for much less than that, where you where you're yeah. scratching your head saying, "I don't, know, I can't really hear this, but this is so obvious." Yeah. But anyway, so I mean, that, 
that's basically the music. Uh, the music is is pretty much what you see is what you get, or what you hear is what you get. There's there's not a whole lot of intricate type of production techniques going on in this song. So let's just talk about the lyrics. Um, when I first heard this, it, it seemed like it was an obvious uh, uh, song about a long distance relationship, and even at that point, we knew that Stewart was not a big fan of all the traveling he had to do in big country. He was getting tired of it. He was getting weary of the road. He had always seemed to have been that that kind of guy, but it was even getting more so as he got older and had a family. But what really changed this song for me and how I approached it, and really, quite honestly, made it absolutely impossible for me to, to maintain the same level of dislike that I had for this song, was when I found out that this song was really about his relationship with Kirsten and heavily inspired by that. And of course, Kirsten sings backups on this this song, which made it another uh, point of huge interest for big country fans at the time because it was uh, Kirsten, uh, Stuart Adamson's daughter, Kirsten, singing on it, and everybody wanted to hear that, and she sounded great and sounds beautiful on the song. But Svide and I were talking uh, before we before we started recording, and we both were aware of this, that Stuart had, had uh, mentioned somewhere that this song was actually about Kirsten, and, and even in my memory that Bella was something that he used to call Kirsten, and this was kind of about how he used to miss her, and, and I'm sure either this applied to Callum too, but the, he, how he missed Kirsten and, and their special relationship and when he was far away and she, she would miss him. And, and uh, this song was kind of about that and how they would try to, or, or at least in Stewart's mind, how he would try to um, deal with that, that, that sense of loss that he was far away from his daughter and his child and how she would deal with that as well because he knew that it was affecting her. So, I mean, what are your memories, Fine, of that whole thing? Because we've been trying to put this together. There there don't seem to be any actual quotes that we have found that prove this case, but it seems like a lot of people have heard this and believe this. Yeah. This is a case where we have no quotes, we have no hard evidence, and nobody took down anything at the time that would have uh, been nice to bring up now. So uh, I think, I know both of us, went and asked people. I know you asked John, and that was his memory too, but again, no quotes. And the same for me. And I actually remember two instances this came up, where one was the official bulletin board, uh, where this was asked, and he said it was about Kirsten and uh, the the toughness of being separated, you know, having a basically long-distance relationship to your daughter and how tough that was from her. And uh, so... It was said there. My feeling is also, he mentioned it once when he visited the crossing chat room on John Underwood's old site, which mm. brings a lot of good memories, that site. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Definitely. And uh, he revealed there also, I, I, I seem to remember that it was encouraging and consoling words to his daughter, Kirsten, who obviously also sings on the song. So uh, I checked and I have to especially thank Michael Wallach, who uh, I reached out to, and he has the same memories. I know also it was said on our Facebook group some months ago that this is about Kirsten. But uh, to be honest, this is a discussion point uh, amongst fans, and I'm not going to go too much into your own discussion, but just to say there there are many theories about who this song could be about. And a lot of people are coming um, or, or struggling to come to terms with the song because of who they think it is about, specifically uh, Stuart's fiance at the time. And uh, describing it more as a make-up song or trying to get back in good favors when they're on the outs. 
which uh, makes it a stark contrast to it being about Kirsten. And I think there are many songs or many things in the lyrics that point towards Kirsten as well. And we'll get into those as we continue the discussion. But I think uh, uh, you can definitely make an extremely strong case based on how many people remember that Stuart said it was about her and the way some of the lyrics are shaped, which definitely points more to that scenario than any others. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I agree. And to me, it is about Kirsten. I mean, I, I, I really believe that it is based on the memories and, and the confirmation from other people who remember Stuart himself saying that. So that that's how I'm taking the song from this point. I could see how you could relate it to the fiancé or someone else. And I, I guess that's kind of the beauty of, of Stuart's writing. He very rarely comes out and writes something that's so obvious. There, there, there are, I mean, you could take this song and apply it to your own long distance relationship if you had one. So that's the way he writes. But when, when Stuart himself says it's about Kirsten, that's what, that's how I'm going to take the song. And as soon as I heard that, the song changed for me in in a lot of respects. Uh, You know, it's, it's impossible not to be touched by this song now because of these lyrics. And, and they're pretty straightforward lyrics in a lot of a lot of respects. I mean, we start out with "If we could fly in the dreaming of dreams, and you came to me, I would welcome you in." That's actually a beautiful few lines there. And so he's he's clearly thinking that this person, and I'm going to just continue to say it's Kirsten. You know, if they could if they could dream their way to each other, they would. He misses her. He he misses her. She he knows she misses him. They're they're he's far away. Maybe he's in America and she's in Scotland or wherever it is. They're they're thousands of miles away from each other. And I like how that that first uh, verse or that first part of the verse, first stanza, is is talking about dreams, and then you're like immediately brought into the stark reality of. But now I'm awake in the dark on my own. Now I'm awake in the dark. He's awake in his hotel room, you're thinking, and the time difference, he can't really call his daughter at this point. He's got nothing going on. He's bored. And he's just he's just missing her. He's missing her. And he knows that probably somewhere she's missing him as well. And then you go into that chorus, Bella, don't cry. Bella, don't cry. Time passes by. Loneliness flies. So you get the feeling that he's he's probably said that to her over the phone or something uh you know he's comforted her he he's he's had that experience before of comforting her probably on the phone like daddy i miss you and it's okay don't cry it's time's gonna go by quickly um i'll be back i'll be back soon and you get the feeling that this probably was a was a much more um constant situation in his life than he wanted and was comfortable with and again this song might be about cursing but i'm obviously it it was I'm sure applied to Callum as well and his and his his other child. So when you when you get that and you realize that it's about Kirsten and you believe that it's about his daughter and the relationship with his daughter, man, these are these are tough lyrics. They they really touch you and really especially if you're a parent. I mean, they 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 really let you know um clue you in onto what he was feeling because I mean, I I don't travel a whole lot. And a lot of people travel more than me, but I do travel sometimes for business. And even if I go away for, you know, like a week or a few days, I I, I miss my kids terribly. I can't, I can't stand to be away from them for that long. So I can only imagine what it must be like to be away from them for, 
weeks, months at a time when they're, when they're young like that. And, um, I think Kirsten was, I think like maybe 14 or something when she sang on this album. So, you know, maybe he's talking about, uh, conversations they had long before this, since she was a young child and he's remembering all of it. And then we get into the next verse. We talk across waters. We walk. We talk across water. We walk in the air. Look for reminders of reasons we care. The luck by day is away from me. That seems like an obvious reference, you know, talking on the phone across waters and faraway places, walking in the air, flying. He's flying back and forth to different places. Um, the line, look for reminders of reasons we care, is a, is a little interesting. It's kind of, uh, you know, do you need a reminder of the reason you care about your daughter? That's kind of an odd line in some ways, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what to make of that one, but I, I guess... It's kind of like, you know, when you're away from someone for that long, and I, I imagine especially like uh, soldiers and people who are away from their families for up to a year at a time. I don't know, I don't know how those people deal with that. You got to have a certain mindset, I guess, to be able to deal with that. But I guess there probably are situations where you almost mentally check out of that situation so that you can get on with what you're doing where you are, since you know that you can't get back to where you really want to be. There's no point in continuing to, you know, uh, daydream about it and, and wish that you could be somewhere that you can't. So you almost maybe mentally check out. And sometimes you probably do have to remind yourself about, you know, what those feelings are and what you've got waiting for you. But I also think um, if you, if you flip the coin a bit and see that line from Kirsten's perspective, uh, I'm sure there was a point where, you know, as a kid, you don't understand why a parent leaves you. Yeah. And why, uh, you know, how does that make you feel? And if you cared, you wouldn't leave. And uh, perhaps it's uh, the song looks at it from both sides. Like he understands. He, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I see this as sort of being about both of them, not just one-sided him to her. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And then we get this line, fill up our days with meaningless acts, which 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 is kind of a, a similar line that's going to lead into our next song in a way. It just like how, how so much of our time is is meaningless, according to Stewart here. And then this line it always gets me when he says, watching the clock as it tries to turn back. To me, that that line takes you all the way all the way back to the lyrics of Inwards, where he says, I wouldn't want to go out on the night like this when I find out that some of the past has been missed. You know, Stuart always seemed to be haunted by missing things that he wanted to be there for. Um, and they were family-related things. And I remember Inwards was was uh, inspired by that. And and it's still the same for him here. And, and you get the feeling that he's thinking, man, I've missed so much. Uh, I've missed so much in, in my the life of my kids growing up. I, I don't I wish I could go back and and re and be able to experience some of these things. I mean, who knows what he missed? It might have been, you know, the first time a child walked or first time a child talked. It might even have been the birth of one of the chi- the kids. I don't know. But you could you could feel that pain. Like he he's he wishes he could go back and and be able to spend time with them when he when they're that young, when he couldn't, when he was traveling. And and it really makes you feel for the guy because we all we know that he was just never really cut out to be 
the quintessential cliched rock and roll star who just traveled the world happily all the time. I mean, it's just kind of a cruel irony. He's, he's such a great artist. He writes great songs that millions of people love. And so he has this opportunity to make his living doing that, which he wants to do. But the, the cruel irony is that it takes him away from the people he loves the most uh, for large chunks of time. And he just was never cut out to do that. And this, this song really brings that home. But really, the, 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 <laughs> the part that's just really, really tough um, is the bridge where he says... I mean, good lord! <laughs> you know, when you when you look at those lyrics now, I mean, wow, uh, how prophetic they were! And uh, you got to wonder: was he? Did he have some inkling of what might happen? I don't know, but um, you got to wonder too uh, how Kirsten would feel reading those lyrics these days. Uh, I wonder if she can even listen to this song. I mean, it's. It's. I hope. I hope that she can. I hope that she can find comfort in this song because there is a lot of beauty in this in this line as well. I mean, it's it's very sad uh, in retrospect because of what happened with Stuart, but there's also a lot of beauty there where he where he says, "I'll wait in peace for you if I should be there first. And they will be together, and and, that, and that's the one positive you can take from this song. He's saying, you know, we will be together, though it may be forever. And one interesting thing about the the demo of this song is that in the demo, they flip those lines around. He sings... Though it may be forever, someday we'll be together. There is a party, and we'll be together. Though it may be forever, I think they made a good decision to switch those lines around in, in the studio version because it's it sounds better, it makes more sense. But it also gives gives it a different layer of meaning when he says someday we'll be together, though it may be forever. That that could be taken as though it may take forever, quote unquote, for me to finally get back to you. We'll be together at some point. But you can also take it as kind of what that bridge is alluding to, which is kind of morbid, but there is also a certain beauty to it in some ways, like in death, one day we'll meet somewhere else in the ever after and we'll be together forever. Uh, it's still, it's, it's, it's a melancholy song to say the least. And, and, and once again, you know, a little, maybe even a big thorn to the heart when you, when you realize what this song is about. So once you realize what this song is about and you realize that it's about him missing his daughter, I mean, it's just impossible to actively dislike this song, at least for me. So I have a lot of problems with the with the production of this song. I mainly it's the keyboards. I mean, it's the song itself too, but because it's not the kind of song structure I I really like Big Country doing. But I will say that I, I do kind of like the strings in this song. I, I like them. I think they add to the song. I, I think if you could take the, the keyboards away, just keep the strings, maybe the song would feel I'd feel differently about it musically, or at least I would, I'm sure I would like it more because those keyboards just are terrible. Uh, but Kirsten singing on it again, we mentioned that that was one of the real 
selling points of, of this song. And uh, I remember when I heard it, I, I thought I w- didn't know what to expect. You know, often when an artist has their child on one of his or her songs, it could go either way. It could be just kind of like them trying to bring the kid on board and they'd have no real talent. But in this case, I remember hearing it and thinking, wow, what a voice. She has a great, great voice. I, I really love the voice, and it, it made me really happy to hear the two of them singing. And um, also around this time, I remember we heard uh, Callum and Stuart performing chants together at, at, a, at a show where they played acoustically. So Stuart was performing music with his kids who, who both were musicians and had an affinity for music and uh, and seemed to feel the same way about it in a lot of respects as he did. So I, I remember thinking that was really a beautiful thing, and it's it's really a beautiful thing that she performed on this song that we have found out in retrospect was about her. So in closing, um, you know, I really felt bad about this song when I initially heard it. I didn't want to hear it after the first listen. I just it just angered me. I just why are you wasting an album spot with this song? I'd heard a lot of the B sides already in the demos, and thought some other songs would have been so much better here. And that's still really the case. But when you when you realize that this song is a plea from Stuart to Kirsten and a and a song meant to comfort her, and a song that she could also take comfort in, and a song that gave her the uh, uh, obvious chance to sing, do her first recording session, um, and she's talked about that even recently, how much she enjoyed that. You got to understand why it's on the album and accept it and appreciate it. So. So really, all these years later, I mean, it's still going to rank very low for me on this album. but And that's just really because of the music and mainly those keyboards. But uh, the the subject matter of the album is very hits very close to home. And it's, it's very beautiful and very sweet. And it's really made me appreciate this song much, much more. So um, that's, my, that's my review of Bella. And that certainly has changed over the years, knowing what the song <laughs> is about. I look forward to your original review now. So yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll get that in due course. Well, that was as well as you could expect, maybe even a bit better. So good for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, We just to start first with the, the obvious uh, administrative duties, we do have a demo for Bella. It's on Rarity 7. You find it as track 11 on CD1. And that comes from the fourth Driving to Damascus demo session at House in the Woods in August 1998. Um that was their most prolific one. They demoed six of the songs that would end up on the album. So Bella was one of them. If you listen to the timeline in episode 70, you will hear that these demo sessions that I just talked about came after a first gig supporting the Rolling Stones in Estonia on the 8th of August. Then there was a break of about eight days or so during which they did these demos, including Bella. And then the Stones gigs picked up again on the 16th of August. So it's really not surprising that a song with a bit of Stones DNA would show up during this time. And um, really, I can't start talking about this song without adding some context, because this this is this is a very funny one. In the run-up to this deep dive, there were so many comments about Bella especially, and I think um, people have some expectation for this discussion. And... When I look at people's comments, we are expected to crush this song. I mean, we are expected to destroy it. And it's it's very interesting to have people say stuff like, I can't wait for you to get to Bella. And it's not because they look forward to our discussion. They look forward to the destruction of it. And so there there is a very 
high anticipation about this song being slaughtered and torn apart. And the hatred for this song is very fascinating. And you mentioned the very same thing. It's, it's not just the intensity of the dislike, but it's just how universally disliked it seems to be by anyone. So people are almost challenging us to show whether the song has any redeeming qualities whatsoever. And this is what I find a bit funny, to almost be put in the position as a big country lawyer who has to argue the case of a song and try to bring up any merits that the people might not have thought about or see if people's view on the song could possibly change. Uh, I'm not sure it works like that, to be honest. I think, especially in the case of Bella, that would be a tough job. Because if someone doesn't like a song, then what I say or what Tom says or whatever we will say, I don't think that changes anything as far as how the song is liked. So I think we can mostly just do the usual, provide the context for the song, take some lyrics, highlight musical passages if there are any noteworthy stuff, and maybe some song background. But at the end of the day, the song is the same as before. So it's always a little tricky to talk about a song that is so extremely polarizing. And then I say polarizing, kind of assuming that there must be some people out there who like this song. But if anyone does, I've never seen them. Have you seen a lot of people stand up for Bella? Well, funnily enough, when I went to, uh, when I was doing some research on the song and on the album, I, I just often will just click up the songs on YouTube to listen to them just, just for convenience. And I, um, I was reading the comments there, expecting it to be crushed based on what we've heard. And there were tons of ni- of good comments. Like, this is a great song. And there you go. Um, you wow. know, big country is, is and, and the people who seem to know who big country was, you know, people who seem to follow their career. So there, there are some people who like it out there. Definitely. The interesting stuff is you never see it on big country dedicated groups. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. It's more the open forums for anyone to, to comment. But that's good. I, I, I knew there would have to be some people out there who at least could find it perhaps a melodic, nice, enjoyable tune, but just a lack of positive comments from big country fans. It's just, wow, there's got to be at least fewer people who like this than most of the other songs. So the status of this song amongst most big country fans is something that I'm quite aware of as I go into this discussion. So um, I'm going to do a brave thing here and say that for the record, I do not hate this song and I don't even dislike it. I actually have quite a bit of like for Bella. And I say like because I can't say I love this song, but uh, at least I will try to be fair to it and not crush it totally, which would be very easy to do, believe me. But You, uh, you were expecting me to crush it, weren't you? I wasn't expecting you to crush it, but I was expecting you to rank it quite low. <laughs> and uh, and well, I think you... that is holding true. Yes, yes. By the way, here here's a here are just a couple comments from that YouTube page, and there aren't there aren't that many. There are only three. <laughs> but okay. Some, but someone wrote, "Whoever disliked this should be ashamed." Someone wrote, "Just brill, go on the country," and then someone wrote, "Wrote, you dislike this song? You like Justin Bieber." <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing is, if all of them were saying positive things, who are they referring to for you dislike this song? Oh, I guess it's the I guess it's the uh, someone downvoted it, but did not leave a comment. Okay, so it's got it's got one downvote. All right, but uh, let's see where I actually end up. I'll get into the music, and um, 
one thing that was said very often when this album was new was that this was the Charlotte on the album, which was a very apt reminder at the time. Charlotte was also very polarizing, and um, the thing that people would, um, the song that people wouldn't like so much, and uh, this was this was it at the time. It certainly wasn't songs like um, "I'll See You" also. That, that that was also the cause of some uh, ire from some quarters. But this song, if you get down to it, it's the Rolling Stone song on the album, and it might even be a good Stone song. But it's very hard, like you said, to imagine that this is the same band that wrote songs like The Storm and Man. And I think that is really close to the core of a lot of the issues that people have. So um, yeah. from that perspective, I think both of us agree this is definitely not your traditional big country song, and even less so than other songs on the album that perhaps are less big country-like in some ways. So um, you mentioned the in excess comparison. I think um, that's a that that's one that I would like to have explained. To be honest with you, it can't be an accident when both the lyrics and the music are replicated to such a large degree. You know, they even the same initials. <laughs> so uh, no, it's um, that's an interesting one. So we'll see. But, but the chorus itself, to look at it, the what they chose to rip off. It's one of those. Uh, Certainly in the in excess form, it's so basic, it's hardly a chorus. They say, baby, don't cry twice. And uh, in Big Country's version, they say, Bella, don't cry twice. But they also go on to develop the chorus a bit more. And uh, thank God, because that turns it into something that is quite okay, I think. It's, it's one of those good, not great choruses. But I like how when um, when they go into the second part of it, someday we'll be together that lifts the entire thing. When you change the key and go into it, then it clicks for me. Uh, the first part of the chorus is kind of just there, and then it goes somewhere. So half the chorus, I think, is pretty good. And even when they go back to Bella Don't Cry Again for the second or the last part, it, it's the, the good feeling stays for that. So chorus is, is decent. Uh, I think um, it's definitely not a Don't Burrows Get to the Chorus song because the rest of the song is on the same level as the chorus. And the first chorus brings in that keyboard, that that lovely keyboard that uh, you like so much. It's the intro to the song even brings it in. Oh, it didn't register so much. I just focused on that riff. Yeah, it comes in right at the, the intro. Plays first. Yeah. But the, when the chorus comes around, that's when it's a bit, at least in your face for me, That that's when I notice it really for the first time as being out there. Uh, and uh, if if that chorus brought the keyboard to my attention, then the second chorus brought the strings. I would never have thought that this song needed any kind of strings. It's a basic rock and roll song, and suddenly what happens? It's a, what happens? It gets laid and done it. The song gets laid and with string, done it. So the strings pretty much stay in the song from there on out. And they're not in the way, they're certainly not as intrusive as overpowering us on See You. So uh, I, I don't have an issue with the strings per se. I just don't think the song calls for it. Uh, I think it would have fitted better if they added a third guitar or something on top. 
because how often do you hear Rolling Stones put strings on their guitar-based rock and roll songs? It's a bit ridiculous if you think of it in those terms. But um, no, I don't have a problem with it. I just think it's a weird thing. Of all the songs on the albums, you pick two songs with strings, and they picked See You and Bella. And, yeah, uh, See You, I understand. <laughs> Bella is strange. Yeah. Although I, I, I kind of like the, the melodic lift it gives the song. I don't know. It, it gives it more of a a, a sweet melodic feel versus it, it kind of it kind of takes away a little bit from the rolling stones feel to me which i yeah. which i like i will say that i have less of an issue with the keyboards than you do i think um it it actually adds to the vintage rock feel of the 70s with some songs uh, stones would use keyboards here and there and it's not the modern keyboard sound it's a, a vintage sound so so i i don't have anywhere near the same issue as you do with those i've always hated that type of keyboard sound it has to be the right song and most of big country's material definitely wouldn't call for it a bella would be one of the exceptions because that falls into the same vintage uh style that you almost never hear them do bluesy otherwise. bluesy hammond organ is the bane of my existence <laughs> i'm Ray sure that's eric uh, in the future, when you are led to rest at the place for you far beyond this earth, you will be <laughs> led down the aisle to the sound of a hammer organ. Yeah, there'll be Rayman Zarek sitting there. <laughs> I've been waiting for you. Come, here is my friend Josh. We have such sights to show you. Such sounds. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's what he'll say. <laughs> oh man! As you can hear, we're, we have the Halloween decorations out. But okay, where were we? Um, musically, there is a guitar break. I'll get back to the lyrics later. But that guitar break is very interesting. <laughs> Very simple dual guitar, which is something they added after the demo. The demo has no guitar break there. So this is a new part, and I think that's a good choice. So it fits very well into the song. It's classic rock sounding, underlines the melody line, and just reminds us that at the core, there is something catchy and melodic about this song. And uh, that's, uh, that that was a good choice. They did something right. And the, the keyboard is all right. The strings are strange. Dual guitar, you know, never wrong ever so um, one other thing they did on the demo that actually works well is to pull back the instrumentation when the vocals come in again from that instrumental break uh, on the demo when they sing someday we'll be together in that part there's a much sparser arrangement the instruments pull back a bit and then they kick in again for the full-fledged belladon cry though it may be forever someday we'll be That is something that would have given tremendous light and shade if perhaps they had executed that bit a bit better on the album than they did the demo. But as an idea and how they pulled it off, that that would have enhanced it quite a bit, actually. So that's a great demo part that unfortunately was lost. I think that's a, that's an issue that McKenna has a lot on this album. We'll talk. We've talked about that some. And we'll talk about it more. At least I will. That he, he seems to have missed some of the light and shade moments that I think he could have made better use of. 
you know, better better dynamics on some of the songs that were there in the demos that did not make it to the studio version. So yeah, I'd agree with yeah. that. And you can you can perhaps playing devil's advocate, you can perhaps make a case that Bella is a straight rock and roll song. Let's just drop the light and shade. But uh, like you say, there are songs that this definitely would have uh, given a lot more heft to if they did it. So, uh, but musically, and I've tried to highlight some things, but really there's not a whole lot to highlight in this song. It's a very basic rock number. And it's not the song where you find the most unusual arrangement or virtuoso instrumentation. It's more a groove and a melody and a band moment, really. So we have covered that to death, I think. The lyrics are the interesting part of the song. That That's where the song um, shines. And uh, this is also where I think you find the biggest contrast between music and lyric on this album. Um, I think it's perhaps some of the more earnest lyrics you find on the entire album. And I would never have expected that for Bella. And that was a realization that didn't hit me straight off the bat. That was something that came to me with when it was revealed it was about Kirsten. And uh, it was revealed, you know, how personal the song was. And also over the years, with certain parts of the lyrics referring to if the place for us is beyond the earth and knowing how things went, there's so much you can <laughs> do in this song, read into it. And uh, with context and baggage and hindsight and so much and really what the person it's about is still here so like you said wonder how she feels about it but uh, i will start about um i will start with the title because bella means beautiful in italian it's the female form of beautiful which tells us that the song addresses a female but we knew that already anyway so it's a very sweet uh, nickname and I'll try not to think of the Bella Twins WWE, <laughs> which, uh, which is tough enough. Uh, honestly, I'm quite happy with these these words. So heartfelt, so sincere. And um, uh, we talked about, you know, as to the best of our knowledge, this, this really is about it. I remember well Stuart saying it was about Kirsten. I'd love to have the quote so that it was, you know, beyond the shadow of doubt. But I think the number of people we checked it with and... The fact that uh, we're not senile yet, it's a pretty strong indication that this is about Kirsten. And um, there are some aspects of these lyrics that would have fit perhaps addressing a lover rather than a daughter. But th the parts that fit Stuart and Kirsten's situation are so much stronger and definitely don't fit other scenarios. And um, the, the song is basically dealing with separation, dealing with long distance relationship. And I'm not going to cover all the verses. You did it well. The key lines and the key clues for the Kirsten scenario is lines like, we talk across waters, we walk in the air. So basically using telephones to call each other, talking across waters, obviously the Atlantic, and traveling by plane to see each other. We walk in the air. And it's interesting, in the demo, he actually thinks we ride through the air, which is much more explicit about flying than walking, which could yeah. be a more poetic about anything. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, but uh, in any case, I I don't think this fits a scenario for being about a woman who would live in the relative same neighborhood as Stuart. Yes, they could still talk on the phone, but they don't fly to see each other. This is about a long distance separation, and the fact that that Kirsten sings on the song is especially telling and very fitting. And I simply don't believe 
that Stuart would have brought in his daughter to sing on a song about reconciling with the lady who took her mother's place. No. I can't think why he would have done that. That would have been not just awkward. It would have been inappropriate. I see it very much as a father-daughter song. And it's a moment between the two of them. And uh, just like you said, when you know this and you see these lyrics, if this doesn't endear you to the song, then I don't know. <laughs> I get why people don't like the music. I get why people don't think this is big country in any form. Uh, I get it. I have no problem with that. But if you just dismiss out of hand these wonderful, these earnest words that a father wrote to her daughter, then I don't know. You have a heart of stone. <laughs> I think, uh, like you said, it helps that I'm a father. It helps that we are parents. And then you see it perhaps a little different. But um, that, that's, that's where I come from. And that's why Bella, in spite of everything, it, I, could, uh, I could never put it in the depths of, of, of the bottom of, of, uh, of where I put the songs I don't like. And especially, I think, the, the music, it's a catchy little song. I don't have a problem with it. I always thought musically it was a little bit uplifting, like Big Country can be. But the lyrics really sell it all the way home. And at least people... Give the lyrics a chance. Read them in the booklet if you don't want to listen to the song because there's something here that's really earnest and touching. Uh, but the bridge section really does seem unusual as far as being a father talking to your daughter. And and, and if the place for us is far beyond this earth, I'll wait in peace for you if you should be there first. Yes, we know what happened. So this is major foreshadowing. Uh, no matter what scenario you talk about, girlfriend or daughter or anyone else, it's a little weird to bring up the possibility of dying if you're trying to comfort the other person. But I think uh, I've thought a lot about that over the years, and I think it's more an expression of love and dying. I don't think it's meant creepy, certainly at all. <laughs> I don't think that for one bit. But given what happened, we can't help but pause at those words which have been given some extra baggage that definitely wasn't intended. So we have to really free ourselves from that baggage. That, that baggage was put there later by other events. Um, you can perhaps start wondering about the state of mind of the person who writes this and wonder, does he know something? Does he have thoughts he shouldn't have? Um, does it reveal some of the depression brought about by separation? Because um, depression was real. This could have been one little aspect of it but also i think if you look at this album in spiritual terms this album is so rich with spiritual religious christian imagery and if you look at it from the perspective of, uh, of christianity where the thought of meeting in the afterlife is uh, is meant as a comfort it's meant as something that uh, uh, it's not meant as a creepy thing and i'm sure it's talked about much more in those circles or some of those circles than it is in my circles where it would be weird to bring it up so if you put yourself perhaps more from that perspective uh, and see it in those terms it's uh it's meant very positive yeah uh, i think that's definitely how he meant it yeah i think that yeah i think that's that's definitely how he meant it yeah so so that's the song i I think uh, we've said in some what uh, what needs to be said about the song itself but i i do have one problem with it and um that's not really the song itself 
it is really the fact that it was included on the album. I think that's a problem. It should have been a B-side. Uh, and I'm, I'm extremely happy that this song actually exists and that it was made, but it should have been a B-side. And I'm actually quite positive that people would have been a lot kinder to Bella if it had been a B-side. People are kinder overall to songs that are B-side because those are not necessarily judged as harshly if they are untypical or less adventurous. And on the contrary, fans often embrace the fact that a band can be a bit more playful on the B-side and step outside of their established musical direction or just have a laugh. So uh, the song's inclusion on the album becomes an even bigger problem if you compare Bella to the songs that ended up as B-sides, like Dust on the Road or Lucerville or Birmingham, This Blood's for You or Living by Memory. There are so many songs that are clearly better and perhaps more suitable album tracks. But uh, I, I see the two reasons that the song ended up on the album anyway. One of them clearly being that the song has personal significance for Stuart, with it being about his daughter, and also the fact that she sang on it. And that would make it a very important song for him. And I'm sure the other guys also would uh, back him on that, that, yeah, this is a very personal significance. It's a very deep, and the lyrics are good. The lyrics defend their place on the album. And also, I, I have a suspicion that the song might have had its champions in the band that wanted a bit of rock and roll on the album and not just songs inspired by singer-songwriter, Americana-style Nashville songwriting. So maybe that also is a reason the song ended up there on the album. So you, know, you never know. But uh, in conclusion, no, not a classic big country song musically. It's basic. In fact, so basic that the musicianship never gets a chance to shine the way we are used to. And basic guitar line. It's really just a riff. Basic melody sung over a basic rhythm pattern. Very clear-cut rock and roll song. So you don't have a problem with Big Country dabbling in that style for one song, even if that sometimes leads to a song like Bella, which is never going to take the band into new and interesting uncharted musical landscapes. But uh, maybe sometimes you need to get that out of your system. And maybe that helps you get back to the track and further along your real path. So maybe that is the purpose of Bella as well. And there's room for fun in rock music. And that's that's really how I think of Bella. But it's, uh, it's a valid discussion. Should it be on the album? Should it be a B-side? And I think that's the discussion you should have for this song. Not necessarily whether it has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. So at, at least I think we did a good job of pointing out the redeeming qualities we see in this song. So I think it's time to hear your original review. All right. Original review from 1999. And, and keep in mind, this is before I realized it was about Kirsten. And um, I wrote Bella. Blecka. <laughs> that's, that's the first word I wrote. Blecka. Oh, I thought that was the only word. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, after that, uh, another controversial song for BC fans. Some think it's sweet and harmless. Others think it's the Antichrist. I just don't like it much, so I guess I'm more in the middle. Sounds like the band's stint with the Stones has really rubbed off on them. Is that Keith and Ron playing the song's opening chords? Again, this is a fine song for most bands, but as admittedly close-minded as it might sound, I just don't enjoy the results when Big Country goes the R&B route. The lyrics in this song are actually pretty good, but the music, I think the real culprit here for me is that cheesy keyboard keyboard part that slithers its way through the choruses. <laughs> Sounds so lightweight to me. I guess the band was just having a bit of fun with this one, but I sure wish they'd have relegated it to a B-side in favor of some better material. 
So yeah, in the, in, you know, even back then I was thinking it should be a B-side, but as I said, when you consider what it's about and how important that was to Stewart and you consider that it was a vehicle for Kirsten to sing on the album, I'm fine with it being on the album now, even though it's not one that I will normally listen to. I see arguments for and against. It's perhaps not as clear-cut, but uh, that doesn't prevent it from ranking lower on my list, and this takes me to what I've said a couple of times. I have... Um, three songs more or less at the same place, 9, 10, 11 on this album. And Bella takes the top spot of those three at number nine, and that is uh, primarily the lyrical quality. Nice. And for me, it is number 11, and that is primarily the musical quality that renders it that low. Yeah. So how close is it to see you? It's it's fairly close. I mean, it, it used to be probably in the beginning this would have been my number twelve. But the fact that I, I realized it's about Kirsten and what their lyrics meant, I couldn't possibly rank this as the lowest on the album, especially when we talked about CU being inspired by greeting cards. So um, it, it's fairly close, but it's I think CU wins the the lowest spot by a good a good margin. <laughs> So a song where Stuart pours out his heart about Kirsten would beat out uh, a series of greeting card messages. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yes, that's, that's good to know. It would have to, wouldn't it? Hi, Great Dividers. This is Arlen from Annapolis. You know, this is one of my very favorite albums, so much so that at one point I thought about doing one speak pipe for every single song on the album. But then I realized that there's, you know, none of you have ever done anything to me to warrant that kind of punishment. So I'll just do the one here. For two of my very favorite songs that I think often get overlooked, the last two songs on the original track listing, um, and with it being the last two songs from the last album of the original lineup, in a way they're the capstone of their career. And I think they do get unjustly overlooked, and they're two of the best examples of Stewart's late period songwriting, and they have some tremendous playing. So, of course, I'm talking about Your Spirit to Me and Grace. Uh, Your Spirit to Me is a marvel of a song, if you really listen to the lyrics. It might be one of the most honest and realistic gospel songs ever written, in that it addresses the theme of once you've had a religious or spiritual experience, the world will tell you that everything has changed in an instant and will be different for the rest of your life. But anyone who's had a spiritual experience has probably found that the next day everything goes right back to the way it was. Your face in the mirror is the same. The world around you looks the same. You even doubt you even had the experience that you know in your heart that you just had. But that knowing of how that feeling is ephemeral and how it's so easy to lose is something that flies in the face of conventional gospel music. And so I think that it's a really telling portrayal of a person who's gone through an experience rings very true to me. And then Grace, uh, phenomenal subject matter if you think about it, because it's, at least to me, uh, a post-coital love song. And you know how unusual that is. Almost every other love song you've heard is about the lead-up to sex and, and or the actual release itself. How often have you ever actually heard a song written about the moments after release with your partner when you're just alone in the darkness and you feel that spiritual connection to them? Um, that's a very powerful song and very unique songwriting about the release you feel after the little death. And so I think that those are both really complex, interesting themes that they're playing with here. Some of the lyrics may seem simple, but they're very profound. And the musical outro on Grace is just a thundering crescendo that uh, absolutely is a 
perfect final ending of Big Country 1.0. So if you never really made it all the way through the end of the album or really listened to those last two songs, go ahead and give it a shot. You won't be disappointed. Seconds of your life that really count for anything. All the rest is killing time, waiting for a train. Starting with the demo, this was demoed on the fourth Driving to Damascus demo session again, just like Bella. House in the Woods, August 1998, sandwiched between Stone's uh, gigs, and this shows that uh, they were able to produce quite diverse songs musically because Bella and Your Spirit to Me might be two of the outer points on each side of the album musically. So uh, you can hear the demo version on Rarity 7 as track number three on CD2. Very interesting song. Uh, We're getting into the last part of the album now. Two songs left and these two songs have a number of things in common which we'll talk about. Uh, First of all, they both have clear elements of being very spiritual songs so uh, the album ends on a very sort of deep spiritual level but at the same time for both these songs there's more stuff going on under the surface and there may in fact be different things going on that things aren't quite what they seem also both of the musical arrangements of these two songs are about setting a mood building a very specific atmosphere so we're getting into some very interesting material as we close in on damascus and i feel how the music comes across really sets the tone for how one should react to the lyrics. And this, I feel, is particularly true for your spirit to me. So, um, simply put, (laughs) I could make this very short and say that your spirit to me is a stunning song. It's so outstanding in so many ways, both on this album and in the band's entire catalog. Uh, It's also a very mysterious song with a very specific mood and lyrics that feel deeper than just about anything else on the album. And like I said, on the surface, a very religious or spiritual song. And uh, Arlen in the speak pipe we just played referred to it as a gospel. And I like that, but also, like he pointed out, there are some distinct differences why it, it wouldn't fall into a more traditional gospel uh, genre or tradition. If you take the lyrics at face value, you see them as a song about accepting Christ in your life or a person in your life or you accept something into your life and you can read it a number of ways. Uh, I I see other things in the song too and I've never been able to shake the feeling that the face value perception is perhaps a little too easy. I always felt that underneath there's more than that going on. Something else that is harder to pinpoint and part of that also comes from how the music strikes me. This is not the music to an out-and-out happy song. The sound is almost ominous and maybe haunting. 
And I challenge anyone not to sit and listen to this song late at night, especially when it's dark and quiet around you and things seem always a little different at night. And how can you sit there and not get the feeling from this song that, that something is wrong? And it's beautiful at the same time. It's a phenomenal piece of music. It just evokes so many emotions. But given how this music is, you kind of know that the topic this song deals with, it, there's got to be a sense of the typical big country darkness here. This can't be a happy song with music like that, can it? So this, these are the things I go into this song with. And it gets even more interesting when you look at some of the quotes that Stuart gave us about this song. And um, he introduced this song on stage at Shepherd Bush on the 2nd of July, 99. He said two things. He said one thing before they played the song, where he said... And then he said one thing after the song. Thanks very much, thank you. Wow, that's a very dark place indeed. So that second line, as the final notes of the song are dying out, and he's taking us through the story of the song, he nods and underlines where the song has taken us. That's a very dark place indeed. It's almost a warning or about something that is to be avoided. So that uh, takes us into the lyrics. So keep all these things in mind, and I'll, I'll bring it round again at the end. Uh, beautiful lyrics, so so haunting, and it so powerful, and uh, really the the best lines, and perhaps the best lines of the entire album comes right at front. There's only seconds of your life that really count for anything. All the rest is killing time, for a train. These are the lines that people pick out. These are the some days will stay a thousand year on this <laughs> album. <laughs> I was just thinking that exact yeah, I was yeah. gonna say that exact same thing. Some albums have some lines that they surpass the song they are on, they surpass the album they're on. They become sort of canon to key messages from the band. Uh, so this this is uh, this is very deep, and you can read these lines on their own, without the context of the rest of the song. And that's really how it is. At the beginning of this song, we don't have a context for these lines. They are the first lines. We don't know what's coming, at least if we pretend that the song is new to us, which from a storytelling perspective, we need to do when analyzing it. But um, they are new. So for now, these initial lines stand alone. But as we get into the song and into the story and into the messages, if you look back at these lines at the end, perhaps they have gotten some meanings into them. Uh, but everybody can relate to it, that only seconds of your life that really count for anything. And just think of your normal humdrum day, getting up, getting ready for the day, going to work, coming home. And it's, um, you know, which are the moments you uh, you truly remember? And um I can pinpoint highlights of my life, and that they would, they would be seconds here and there, and that that were really that really touched you deep inside. And I think that's what this is. This is a very spiritual song in nature. So, talking about the moments that really reach you and with with a deep personal significance. So, great lines, great great lines, and I'll circle back to these at the end of the song because I think then we perhaps have some context for them. 
So if you continue into the song. I'm the revelation brother. I was sitting by in myself. Last thing I was looking for came and left. He was doing something else. And we also learned that he was alone and then something happened. And uh, as he says, it was the last thing he was looking for, as in not the last thing he wanted to happen, but the last thing he expected, which mirrors what Stuart said uh, from stage, when things happen to you when you least expect them to. So uh, out of nowhere, something happens and uh, it has a deep personal impact on him. And I'm being all rounded in my approach. I'm not I think uh, it's meant to be some sort of religious experience, but I'm going to, it's not, you don't need to be specific for the song to work on any level. So I'm going to keep it general, even though I think that's where the song um, was written from, from that perspective. So um, the interesting thing in that line, which almost you can miss if you don't pay close attention, it didn't just come, it went uh, that's very important here. This is, if this is about receiving the spirit of Christ and experiencing the full profound effect of it, but then have it almost disappear on you again, that's uh, that's very unique. And I think that's approaching something here central to this song, because after it was gone, the world was the same. And I think the words in this chorus are so beautiful. The sea stagger. Sea still rolled, no mountain fell, the sun still rose to moon as well. Lovely, lovely lines. So simple, so beautiful. And also so sad because, you know, you, you experienced something that was so profound and the world didn't change and things didn't feel differently. So the, I, I read a lot of sadness in those, as, as beautiful as those lines are, they're, they're, there's something in them, a sense of loss and like, I changed so much, or this was so important, but it didn't matter to the world. Everything was the same. And like he continues, he goes on with, I was undone, some kind of free, the day you sent your spirit to me. On an album that is so clearly religious in overtones and spiritual in nature, this it's really not a stretch to imagine what is going on here. It, it falls into that theme very naturally. So these words are words you can use 100% when describing how it can feel. If you accept Christ into your life, or you meet a person, or whatever you want to do, you can use these words for any life-changing event, meeting a soulmate, or whatever. Um, the thing is, he has already said he was sitting there alone when something happened to him, so that almost excludes another person coming along, but it could just be a feeling that suddenly overtook him, a realization. It could it could be anything, so still you can read more into it. Um, and even though the mountains didn't crumble, he was undone, some kind of free. Not totally free, some kind of. 
even there he seems to be a little hesitant on how deeply this, this experience felt for him. And that goes even further in the next verse. And as we learn here, even in faith you can't have doubt. I ran and looked in the mirror Like I'm expecting in a change But dagger deep in my guts The fear remains And that's the point where it all falls into place. Uh, This is not a song about finding faith or finding someone else or finding whatever. This is a song about having experienced that spirit but losing it again and being left alone in the aftermath wondering what the heck happened. And that takes us through another chorus and then a final stanza. Is this just something else to lose That you never replace Another name that you try to give a face. It is clear that the person in this song has lost other things in his life, and perhaps he was seeking for another solution or feeling something strongly, but now wondering whether it took, whether it really meant as much as it first felt like. And at this point in the song, it is now clear whether it would come back or not. And we're catching this guy in the midst of doubt. He's having a spiritual crisis, and the song and the story and the song ends before he has worked it out. So it ends up being about that doubt more than anything else. And at this point, if we look back again at the first line, there's only seconds of your life that really count for anything. All the rest is killing time waiting for a train. So having talked our way through the song somewhat, these are the lines that still stand out. They sounded very profound at the beginning of the song, and now at the end they are no less profound than before. But we know a little bit more about where they're coming from. And in the context of the song, they refer to the seconds where you do feel that full force of the spirit when you are aligned, and then you lose it, and things don't really count anymore. And perhaps you're left searching, and perhaps you never find it again. So you're left killing time until you can get back to where you were. And that makes your spirit, to me, a very bleak song. You had something, then you lost it. And I don't know if you're worse off than before, but this interpretation would match Stuart's comment from the Shepherd Bush show, where after playing the song, he says, that's a very dark place indeed. And that comment actually makes no sense if the song is about finding the spirit. You found something that enriched your life, but it makes total sense if you found something, then lost it, and you're left reeling almost from the loss. You experience something that's so fantastic and so life-changing, and then you're left with fear and doubt, missing that feeling, wondering if it will ever come back. That is a very dark place indeed. Mm. So it's a very um, interesting song from that perspective. Mm. Uh, It's also interesting the point where he leaves the story, uh, because the search could go on, and people have written songs about searching for the meaning of life, searching for you know, the spirit or even Stuart has written songs about that search, but this is not about that search. It's about the loss. So um, very, very interesting. And this is also one of those songs that discussing the lyrics, almost uh, you can't do it without discussing the music because they are so closely tied together and one of them gives meaning to the other part and, and back again. And it starts with the intro, even there, from the get-go. The intro to this song is very mystical. And when those sounds come on at the beginning of the song, you you even sense there that this is going to be a very unique and special song. And those sounds sound like nothing else you've ever heard in a big country song. (laughs) 
and then the guitars come in and you know something's going on here. <laughs> it's very atmospheric and very uneasy, really. And I, I recently mentioned that Trouble the Waters was the prime example on this album of a more ominous song or the something is coming or something uneasy is, is happening type of song. And I still think that song is the best example of that, but you definitely get some of that here as well. Uh, those those would be the two large songs in that category for me on the album. So, so musically, like I said, this always felt like a dark song or something is going down that isn't positive. And it, all the way to, to the first times I listened to this song, just take it in this atmosphere and the music and perhaps the odd lyrical fragments sticking out. Didn't get the sense of a happy song. And that confused me at first because before I sat down and studied the lyrics and think about it, I would, uh, the, the way the songs first hit me would always be the face value take. And the face value thing about this is finding Christ or finding another person or finding whatever. Why is the music filled with foreboding? Why does it sound like something bad happened? So uh, that led me to perhaps read these words earlier than I would care about getting deeper into the other songs, because this was very, very unique. And uh, a song where the band is very carefully playing their parts to produce an atmosphere. Uh, it's not the song that calls for virtuoso instrumental parts guitar solos. In fact, there's no guitar solo in this song. No standout musical moments as far as individual brilliance. But this is a band performance that where all of them are doing the utmost to underpin a mood, create an atmosphere. So that's what we have here. And it works so well. This is exactly what the band's strengths are. These are the type of songs that drew me into the band back in 1983. These are the type of songs that, that I want from Big Country. I want those those atmospheric things that they master, they always master them better than anyone else. It's not hit material. It's not something that potentially would take them to the next stage of their career. So I, uh, I would never expect full albums of this stuff, but I'm glad that you get still songs from them at this point that are in that vein. So um, musically, as a consequence of this, no guitar solo, like I mentioned, but there is a small instrumental passage where the melody of the song is played out after, I think, the second chorus, if I remember correctly. And you can clearly hear in that passage, Tony's very subdued yet masterfully played bass line where he knows exactly where to pull back, where to pause, where to sort of fill that little spot in, in a way that fits the song. And uh, the guitar lines as well, you, you hear no individual solo lines played. It's a mixture of sustained chords that creates sort of a very ethereal effect. And Mark, too, is similarly sustained approach. And it sounds like he's playing with brushes on the song, so very carefully laid out musical uh, arrangements for all the guys. Mm -hmm. 
And sometime during the second chorus, we have female backing vocals appearing again, used very sparingly during that particular chorus, but they come back, I think, on the final chorus a bit more to the front and more used to there. I will assume that this is Eddie Reader showing up again for her third and final time on this album. Yeah, maybe it's Mark Brzecki singing that backup part. I seriously doubt that. <laughs> I mean, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He will wear tight underwear from time to time, but I don't think it can ever be that tight. He does have a nice falsetto. Yeah, he does. I like his backing vocals quite a bit. Even his lead vocals when he does it. I don't think he does it much for Big Country. But one example we have isn't very representative. But <laughs> yeah, but that's this song. I, th- I think it's a very, very interesting uh, song, both lyrically and musically. And um, the place it has on the album, too. Your Spirit to Me, after all the religious themes, it ends on a, on a point of, uh, of searching and doubt and a very haunting musical arrangement. So that's... Uh, that's a huge song, I think, certainly for me. Yeah, very, very nice. Very good job on that one. Um, yeah, this is a huge one for me, too. I, I have some problems with it, but they're all, they all stem from the production. Missed opportunities in the production, and it kind of goes, goes back to what I said earlier about Rafe McKenna missing these opportunities to have more obvious dynamic changes in a song. Um, I'll, t- I'll talk about that in a second, but... Yeah, this song, I mean, just like you said, when I first heard it, I immediately took it as as the religious experience thing. And so I just kind of accepted without really delving into it. And it's kind of embarrassing now when I look at how different the lyrics really are than I than I just expected. Um, I, I kind of just took it as, oh, well, this is the song about when Stewart, you know, really became a committed Christian or when he felt the spirit of Christ come on to him and he you know, change because there, there's something in Christianity that goes back to uh, one of the books of the Bible, also in Acts, which is originally um, where the driving to Damascus story came from too, which is interesting. But there's a, a section in there where um, the Holy Spirit descends for the first time upon the followers of Jesus and like these tongues of fire come down on people and the whoever witnesses this event actually sees um, tongues of flaming tongues of fire come down on people and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and it's like this big life-changing thing. And whether or not Stuart was thinking about that particular story as he took inspiration from that book of the Bible for the title song on the album, I don't know, but it's certainly possible. Um, but yeah, I, I just kind of took it as a positive song at face value. But when you when you look at those lyrics, it really is unbelievably dark and when you when you mentioned that line that Stuart said at the end of the song and at the end of that performance as bad as that makes me feel it also makes me feel a little bit better for my own interpretation of the song because I do as I went back as I've gone back through this song over the years and not just preparing for this album but really delving into it 
it really is such a dark and difficult to decipher song because yeah, he, he gets this experience that something comes to him, something happens to him. God sends his spirit to him, but it doesn't seem to change anything. And, and that, that's so odd to such an odd way to write a song like this. And it's, um, it's Stuart's unique qualities again and, and fearless qualities even though the song is about fear it's actually a very fearless song to write something like this and and those lines that just really get me uh, i ran and looked in the mirror like i'm expecting a change but there deep in my eyes the fear remained and arlen kind of talks about this on his speak pipe too that sometimes and again I, i'm coming from this background so i feel like i i experienced a lot of this where people think that a conversion experience will immediately put them in this state of perpetual bliss where everything will be wonderful and and they'll always have this same energetic uh feeling that they have someone with them the spirit of god with them and they can do anything and they can get through any challenge etc cetera, etc cetera. but it, it doesn't work like that and and that's kind of what this song is is saying like even though he had this experience all the things that were bothering him before are still there so i guess the question about this song becomes what is the good of this experience? Is there something positive to be gleaned out of this song? Is there something positive about his relationship with, with Jesus in this song that he's looking to that's going to help him? And I have to say, when you look at the lyrics as they are on Driving to Damascus, the answer there has to be, there. no, there's nothing. And, and that's what makes it so dark, because something happens to him, but it's not what he expected. It's not... It's not the big change that he expected. Everything still keeps going as it did. And I got to say that I find it really, knowing that Stuart was so religious at the time and was so into Christianity and reading about it and studying it, I find it so interesting and strange, maybe even, that he would write a song like this. But it's very telling. In fact, I think this might be one of the most telling songs that you will find if you're looking for an entrance into Stewart's headspace uh, around the time that he was falling apart. I think this is probably the, the main song that you would want to look to. Because even the religious aspects that he was delving into at the time don't seem to be bringing him the peace that he's looking for. In fact, at the end, he's saying, is this just something else to lose? that you never replace. Maybe he had like, like this brief feeling that, that was uh, this brief epiphany feeling where he felt encouraged and then all of a sudden it was gone again. And then he just felt like the fleeting nature of it was just almost as useless as the opening lines of the song would suggest other things are. Um, but when you look at the John Wayne's dream version of this song, there's a very crucial line that's added into the song during that instrumental portion that you mentioned. Now, the instrumental portion has no lyrics, of course, which is why we call it the instrumental portion. But on John Wayne's Dream, they add a line in there that Stewart would sing live. And to me, this is a crucial line in, in a lot of respects, both crucial in the, in the fact of what it says, but also in the fact that it was omitted from the original version and, and the intent behind that. And that line is... Back. 
Now that to me is is a positive line because it, when you when you hear that line, you can almost think that he's finding himself in a difficult position. The wind is in his face. He's got a lot of hard traveling to do, metaphorically speaking. He's got a lot of things that he has to do and deal with. But that line, the sun upon my back, that gives you a sense that he's being encouraged by something, that he feels like something is helping him, something is going on this journey with him. Even though he has the wind in his face, something is is there behind him. And, you know, you could obviously say that would be Jesus from this or God or his relationship with God. So I find it really fascinating that that line was was not used in the original version of this. Now I don't know if I don't know if it was. Um, I, I'm assuming it was written and recorded at the time the album was recorded, and I know that he used to sing that live. But I wonder if it was not included because it offers that sort of positive frame of reference to the song. Because if you remove that line. There's nothing positive about this song. There's nothing but futility and questioning. But if you put that line back in, you can sort of say, well, this is actually a positive line where he feels like this this experience that he has has given him some sort of support system in his life or something to support him as he continues into the wind. So uh, these are questions that can't be answered, obviously, but... It's it's an interesting. I would I would love to ask why was that line not used in the first place? Why was it brought back? And and it was brought back after Stewart's death because I think John Wayne's Dream came out in like two thousand two or something. Yeah, yeah. So that to me is a crucial line and a very a big mystery of this song. And and he did sing it live, as I said. So he must have at some point decided it should be in there, or he wanted it to be in there for whatever reason. But um, but yeah, the, this is just an incredibly bleak song, but lyrically. Uh, but musically, yes, I, I remember hearing this. This is one of those songs that I heard for the first time live in, in Nashville. Never heard this song before until they played it then. And um, I just remember being absolutely stunned by it uh, from the moment it started. The, those, those opening guitar lines and just that way that he's playing them which is kind of similar to the live stuff he did at the end of alone when he would play alone kind of picking two strings and uh, although this is a much slower um use of that but i just thought oh my gosh this is so beautiful as soon as this, as soon as the song began i knew i was falling head over heels for it
got an over-the-border feel to me it, it, it just has a similar feel to that song and, and i would i think that this is the song with that biggest sense of foreboding and doom on this album it's, it's just gigantic now where i have a problem with the song comes down to the production nothing to do with the writing of the song but when i saw this song live i remember kind of toward the third chorus the time the third chorus kicked in the drums just really kicked in. And I remember being really taken by that live. Like the drums kicked in. And you're right, Mark, it does seem to be playing with brushes. And I think live, he, he started playing with sticks in this portion where, in fact, I remember very clearly when I saw this live for the first time, I was thinking I lead on in my head. Like, wow, this has got an I lead on type of feel. You know, when the drums really kick in. So let me fill my children's hearts with hero's tales. It, it kind of gave me that same anthemic feeling of I lead on. And on the studio version, it never gets there. There's a little bit of a change in the kick drum pattern at the same point in the song on the studio version, which is kind of taking it up a notch, but it does not have nearly that same effect on the music as I thought the live version did. And I really question that choice very much. And it's not like this is an anthemic song that necessarily needs some gigantic fist-pumping section, but I feel like it needs to, to come up a little bit like it did live. That's my one criticism of the song, is that as beautiful as it is, it starts out so beautifully, even through that first chorus, but it never really builds on that musically. And I wish it would. Even even the chorus, it, it's it's done with these just strummed guitar chords that are ringing guitar chords. Works beautifully on the first chorus, but on subsequent choruses, I really wish they'd done or added something else in the background. I could, I could hear it in my head, you know, like like some traditional typical big country flair to the to the chorus that would just take it up a notch i feel like the song sort of and and i said this about fragile thing as well like um it sort of comes to a certain point and it just meanders at that point musically throughout the entire song and i feel this song really needs something to to kick it into high gear toward the end and if it had that i think it would be even more powerful and and very very likely my number one song on the album um, because for me, the only reason I don't rank it number one is those production choices. I think it's, I think the, the best lyrics 
on the album. I think um, some of the best, that opening line might be one of the best opening lines Stewart has ever written. Uh, I certainly think it's right up there. But I think uh, I think musically it just needs it needs something else. I would I would have done something else to the choruses, made them stand out a little bit more after that first one. I would have kicked in the drums more to sound like they did when they played this song live, and I would have taken that up a big notch as it came to a crescendo. And I think that would have made the song even more powerful, and and maybe even more gut wrenching in a way, maybe even a, a little more intensity on Stewart's vocal performance and a final chorus would have helped that, but. You know that that's a that comes down to production, and this is kind of my I wouldn't say hate when I was I was going to say love hate relationship with Rafe McKenna on this album. It's, it really isn't hate, but love maybe questioning relationship with Rafe McKenna because I think some of the things he does, and I, I'm not exonerating the band from all these decisions either, but this usually comes from the from the producer. I think some of the things he's done on this album are just fantastic, and some of the sounds he's gotten are just fantastic. But there are some songs, and this is one of them, where I think they could have really benefited even further from those big dynamic changes that really would have grabbed you because because you're at a place i mean it's got you at rapt attention this song and you know it's kind of like Stewart's line like i'm expecting a change i was expecting a change in the music of this to kind of mirror what i experienced live and it never really comes in the studio version but yeah, so that that's my only issue with it is is that those production choices. But musically and lyrically, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous song, and it's so, so haunting and so so difficult of a song. And yeah. man, the darkness just doesn't recede. <laughs> you know? I mean, some of the musical darkness maybe recedes, like Bella's happy and upbeat, but even the lyrics are still pretty sad and depressing. And then this song is like, whoa, this is like. In fact, even as I talk about it, I'm like, in, in some ways, this is even more difficult than Fragile Thing as far as depressing because, you know, if you lose the woman, okay, you can at least look to your spiritual um, road to give you some comfort. <laughs> and, like, if you if you don't have that anymore, then what do you, what can you possibly have? Don't be sad. Don't be sad. I have the antidote All for right. you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mr. Mr. Flatulating Microphone. <laughs> your presence is welcome yes that's what this needed the production of this song's discussion needed something else <laughs> oh man yeah i really don't have anything else to say about it it's uh you know the one thing that i i will say about Stuart is and that i respected about him so much when it comes to his religious pursuits is that he was a guy who was constantly searching and he was not content to just accept something as fact and then just imprint that onto his psyche and move on with his life. And that, that's, that's always been my issue with a lot of religious people. You know, they, they will, they will believe something. Okay. This is what I believe. I'm never going to think about it again or question it or, or pursue it again. This is just part of me. And now I'm going to move forward and do other things. It becomes like a, a, a subconscious thing, but Stuart was always searching and looking for answers. And maybe some of that, you know, I can relate to that because I've done that in my own life and, to be honest, a lot of that search has led me to <laughs> to becoming more of an agnostic, and I almost feel like maybe Stewart was getting to that point in this song. It's, in some ways, it's like he's questioning the whole spiritual thing. You know, is this real? Is this not real? Shouldn't I have been changed even further from this? So, you know, I I just I I have such respect for him for writing a song like this, um, and for for being so open and honest with his pain and what he was dealing with. And it's tough to listen to, but it's still beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's all of those things. Tough, sad, 
beautiful, heartbreaking. It's so many things. But at the end of the day, it's also an amazing piece of art. It's beautiful and it's heart-wrenching and it's uh, soul-searching. Yeah. It's what it's what's best about Big Country, no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, this is one of the better songs in the album. And I'm sort of finding myself running out of the top spots at this point. But uh, ranking doesn't matter so much. It's it's my number four. Nice. It's my number three. Yeah. And here's here's what I wrote about it back in the day. Uh, I wrote, okay, now we're back on track again. I was blown away by this song when I saw it live in Nashville. They've pretty much recaptured that glory here. The only thing lacking for me is that live, Mark really kicked in with the drums, I lead on style during the last chorus, and it really took the song to a new level. <laughs> that doesn't happen here. The drums, sounds like he's playing with brushes, continue along at the same level of intensity throughout. Otherwise, though, the lyrics to this are great, and I love the guitar parts. A very classic big country sound and song. Reminds me a lot of Over the Border and the introspective nature of the lyrics and the music. <laughs> great piece. <laughs> You must have peeked at them. I changed so much. You, you have peeked at them, haven't you? You're not reading them for the first I, time. I did. No, I did. I did peek at the last couple. I admit, but I, but I would have said that anyway because I, that's yeah. all, that over the border thing is always. It's always reminded me of over the border, um, mm. just in the sense of that song. But uh, yeah, I, I did peek at them. But I, but I promise, I, <laughs> I'm not being influenced. That I can believe, <laughs> Mister Set in his ways strikes again. <laughs> That's right. All right. We have one to go. I, I think I can see Damascus in the distance now. I can. I can see Damascus in the distance. And for God's sake, let's get there, shall we? Hey, guys. John Lewis from Sacramento, California. Driving to Damascus is a terrific album. Um, it's not something that I listen to very much anymore, but whenever I do, I'm reminded of just how good the songs are uh, lyrically, musically, they just fit. Um, Your Spirit to me has one of my all-time favorite big country lines. Uh, the first few lines, there's only seconds of your life that really count for anything. All the rest is killing time, waiting for a train. Uh, I think about that every time I'm killing time, waiting for the Amtrak, coming back from San Francisco. Um, it's, to me, that particular line kind of bookends big country. Uh, it's the antithesis of stay alive. It's not the opposite, but um, stay alive is kind of a, a hopeful, you can say it through gritted teeth. You can say it as a, as a victory uh, cry. It's, it's kind of on, on the up and up. Uh, whereas there's only seconds of your life is really a, a struggle to find meaning in anything at all. And uh, it's very, very sad. And in fact, that whole song, Your Spirit to Me, is incredibly sad. And it's, it's, uh, it's something that resonates with me on a very deep level. Um, I, I get where, uh, where the song seems to be coming from, from this, this kind of dejected idea that um, the, the person is trying to find themselves, trying to find another, trying to, to understand uh, what is life. Um, and uh, I know I'm not being very clear, but uh, that, that's really what it means to me. And uh, a lot of the songs on Damascus are like that. Uh, they, they tell a story. They're about searching, seeking, um, perfect world, definitely about seeking um, 
fragile thing. Our love is a small and fragile thing. Uh, I spend a lot of nights missing you. I, I think it's um, it's that that seeking and that desire that uh, makes this album uh, so so profound for me. Um, and and in a way, a different way than the other albums, which uh, to me, especially the early albums, are more about hope and more about perseverance. Um, these are a lot more introspective. Anyway, that's my two cents on driving to Damascus. Uh, thanks very much. Hi, everybody. It's Lance from Oregon, USA. Um, for me, the highlights of this album, both musically and lyrically, without doubt, are your spirit to me and, gra- and grace. Uh, I consider the rest of the album uh, hit and miss, uh, leaning mostly towards miss. Coincidentally, both of these songs are the most blatantly religious in nature. Um, and I'm really interested to find out via this broadcast uh, podcast um, what the circumstances were that influenced Stewart at this time. I mean, it's clear that something spiritual had an effect on him. Uh, what I find so intriguing about these two songs are that they work on multiple levels. Um, for those who want to hear a Christian message, it's clearly there, especially with grace. Um, the biblical references are in, there in abundance. Um, however, both songs also work through the lens of a romantic relationship for those who aren't really into religion. Again, especially more so on grace. Uh, both songs can be interpreted as someone, perhaps maybe Stuart himself, humbling himself and expressing his faults to his partner and asking for redemption. The only line that really doesn't fit into this relationship interpretation um, is the line that, that goes, by your little death are both of us saved. Uh, this one screams the Christ story to me, more so than the death of a, of a loved one or a partner. Um, but the most powerful lyric on the entire album for me are the, the ones that open up your spirit to me. There's only seconds of your life that really count for anything. We talk about so much being said in so few words. Um, you know, while I wouldn't put these two songs... Um, in the band's top 10, I would rank them up towards the top of the list while the rest of the album for me would live near the bottom um, of the list. Uh, just on a side note, I'm curious, guys, if the Damascus deep dives will actually take more time than it did for the band to actually record the album itself. So it could happen. Let's set a record, guys. All right, over and out from Oregon, USA. Okay, and so ends another monstrous, epic, plus-sized episode of the Great Divide podcast as we continue our ongoing deep dive, deep, deep dive to Damascus. We can see the gleaming city in front of us of Damascus, but we are not there yet. We're going to have to take one more pit stop before we finally conclude our journey. But our journey will conclude in the next episode. That much I can guarantee. So until then, thanks so much for listening as always. And... Thank you so much to those who took the time to record the speak pipes for these episodes. They've really added so much, as they always do. So thanks so much. Hope you've enjoyed these shows. BigCountryPodcast at gmail.com. You can email us there. You can also let us know on our Facebook page, The Great Divide Podcast. If you're not a member, please sign up. Join. A lot of great discussion going on there. And uh, thank you so much. And we will be back next time. And finally, we will wrap up our journey to Damascus and we will be finished with this very, very difficult album. We will both be proud and relieved to have completed this journey. So thanks for coming with us, and we will see you next time.
then they did a second demo of this song at the final session. God, I'm making a total mess of this. Let me do this all over again. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. God, that was bad. I'm already flustered about this fucking song. Okay. <laughs> this is a shitstorm. Um, <laughs> yes. That's a good outtake. Yeah, you, you'll get a few in this one, I'm sure. Okay, the demo of Trouble the Waters. We actually have two demos for this song. It was written slightly later than most. Um, the first version we have of this, the first demo was written... was the f- <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, God. We'll do it do live. Ha- we'll do it live. <laughs> do, we, do I have to write down the actual fucking speech? All right. I'll try again. 